Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 2, Episode 2, Proper 3 Total. After our Alpha episode, in which we disclose we are discussing Flannery O'Connor's short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, published in 1965, which is just after her death in August of 1964, uh, the first episode proper, we discussed Everything That Rises Must Converge, the story, and the story, The Comforts of Home. And on this episode, we will be discussing Greenleaf and um, and the Enduring Chill. Uh, so, um, Whitney, just to, to kick us off, uh, you've taught Greenleaf. Just just tell us, uh, you know, what what experience you had teaching that. It, was that for the your um, uh, dual enrollment class? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I teach a dual enrollment class to high school juniors, and we. It kind of had a, a theme of the American dream, explorations of different ways the American dream can manifest. And we read The Great Gatsby and A Raisin in the Sun, Into the Wild, and stories by Flannery O'Connor. Um, and when I taught Greenleaf, I had already taught them a few stories already. And so I was ready to let them tackle this story a little bit more independently in the sense that I did not lead the interpretation as much when we got into class to discuss the story. So actually at the top of the first page of Greenleaf in my copy of the book, I have a list um, that includes things like the bull, um, the sky, the green leaves, um, things that I split the students into groups at the beginning of class and had each group look for a certain idea or motif or you know thing in the story and then try to figure out what that thing symbolized and so I just kind of set them up for the idea that there's a lot of symbolism of concrete people and and things in O'Connor's stories so it went really well um it, at least in terms of like the group that had been assigned the bull were able to come to the conclusion on their own just from looking at how the bull is described in the story that the bull is supposed to represent God. You know, they were able to kind of come to that without me telling them to come to it, which I was pleased with, um, and to point to actual language and the story that seemed to indicate that to them. Um, it's pretty explicit with the bull um, and God, I would say, up from the first page, so they were able to get to that on their own. They had a little more trouble with ideas like... Um, the green leaves, you know, because people don't symbolize something in a kind of basic way in the story. People are complex, fleshed out characters. But anyway, yeah, I I felt that the students um, did pretty well. They did think it was a little brutal. Um, so talking through the purpose of that brutality and the way it's described and it, it that kind of undercuts the brutality and brings something very different. Um, in into what would be a brutal act at the end, um, normally being gored by a bull. So um, <laughs> I have a different interpretation of the bull, but we'll get to that when we get into the story. But um, the bull is very clearly an agent of grace, I would say, right? Um, in in the same way that in the story, the enduring chill, the um, the water stain on the um, on the ceiling. In, in Asbury's uh, room is shaped like a bird and it says that 
there are like icicle shaped stains and one of them is going through the bird's beak. And so that is, um, I guess this, the, the symbol of grace or the, the representation of grace. And in fact, it's, it's more explicitly called the Holy spirit at the end of the story. Yeah. The bull um, is kind of explicitly called God, but we'll have to talk about that. Right. Right. Well, and, and, you know, this idea of being a woman being, um, ravaged by a bull comes from the rape of Europa uh, myth and so uh, we'll talk about that because um, I, I, I certainly think Flannery O'Connor is, is using the bull to show that God's will uh, w- w- God's will can can just stampede into you you know when you're just lying there thinking you know when is that guy going to shoot that bull um, yeah, and I guess when I say symbolizes God, I, just to clarify, mm-hmm. um, I don't mean like in some sort of super direct way, right, like right. oh, like that would almost be um, heretical or something, mm-hmm. you know, to say like a like a bull, this kind of brute creature, is you know anthropomorphically representing God, but more just like you say is in a really direct agent of God's grace, and she points to that explicitly, you know, mm-hmm. in, sev- in several places so that we're not going to miss it if we're paying any attention. Yes. So uh, Greenleaf was published in 1956, and then The Enduring Chill was published in 1958 uh, in magazines, and then, of course, published in this short story collection. And so one of the articles that I will probably refer to briefly is called Everything That Rises Must Converge, O'Connor's Seven-Story Cycle by Harbor Wynn. And that is from the journal Renaissance, so R-E-N-A-S-C-E-N-C-E, Renaissance. Um, And then um, another article I'm going to be looking at is Flannery O'Connor's Six Protestant Conversion Tales. So that's actually going to discuss both of these stories. Well, really, both of those articles do. And then there's one called Flannery O'Connor and the Enduring Chill. You can probably guess which story that one's going to discuss. That one's by Paul O'Reilly from the Catholic blog or uh, magazine Dappled Things. And so, in fact, I think Dappled Things is... I've, heard, I've listened to so many podcasts and, and speeches about O'Connor that I can't remember what it is, but I know it's a Catholic uh, publication. And then, like I said, the... the um, Six conversion Protestant conversion tales. That's by Lorna Weidman, uh, and it's from the Flannery O'Connor Review. So those those are my uh, my secondary sources for this episode. Love that title, Dappled Things. That um, Gerard Manley Hopkins mm-hmm. reference is a beautiful poem. I really like that as a name for a publication. Yeah. So um, so let's start with Greenleaf. We will start with the main character, Mrs. May. So. Um, I guess, you know, as I was reading this story, one of the first things that I noticed was Mrs. May has this quintessential Flannery O'Connor, I cannot stand these people attitude. And we saw it in Julian's mind. We really, Julian's mother's mind. Um, we saw it in Thomas's mind in, in The Comforts of Home. Um, it, she just I don't think there's a single story she wrote where there's not a really antagonizing person, right? Is that a good word for it? Yeah, well, it's like she feels antagonized 
as if she's the the reasonable good one and mm-hmm. everyone around her is so frustrating and annoying. Except she has these friends, it mentions a few times, who never enter the story, but they're just, mm-hmm. like, covering the background. Like, she has friends who apparently are her cheerleaders and who yes. are like, oh, Miss May, you're just the most industrious, wonderful person we know. How how did you ever manage to run this farm, you know? but With an iron fist. Right. <laughs> but everyone in the story seems to make her feel defensive, frustrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I guess the, the friends that Whitney's referring to are her city friends, um, where the husband had bought this farm before he died, and then, a, as homage to him, she decided to stay on the farm and keep it running, and, and, and I guess just kind of keep it in the family. She's trying to keep it uh, profitable such that Schofield and or Wesley can take it over. However, Schofield sells insurance to the black people in the area, which I guess I'm just not uh, very well versed in insurance. But, you know, it sounds like he probably sells cheap insurance. Like cut rate cut, policies yeah, or whatever. Cut rate policies and maybe like rainy day policies. Like, like if you know you're going to need insurance, he sells it to you kind of like, you don't have you don't have kind of standing coverage, but like he'll sell you like a, a three month policy or something like that. I don't know. It's like what we had before your insurance for your job kicked in. We had oh, yeah. a, a yeah, short term yeah. policy for a few months, and it was like really cheap, but it wouldn't kick in and help you unless you had like an astronomical yes, medical bill. Yes. So yeah. So he sells that, um, and he's quite successful at it and then uh wesley is the the intellectual brother who had um i can't remember what his ailment was but he, he had been uh, afflicted physically as a young uh, you know as a rheumatic young boy, fever rheumatic fever and so um so he is kind of more i don't know if invalid is the right word but he, he's he's the intellectual and so um he's kind of cynical and and kind of just an angry young man although he's middle aged i mean he's like 35 and so uh, he and Schofield are both um they're not ne'er do wells in the way that like Julian was from from in, uh everything that rises must converge but they have that same sense of of um like they're stuck in their ways the way that Thomas is in the comforts of home and so Mrs. May is dealing with two sons who really have no interest whatsoever in taking over the farm, and yet she's trying to keep it profitable such that when she dies, they'll inherit something of their father's. Um, And so yet again, here's a deceased father in a story, um, and people, you know, dealing with him not being there. And so the absence of the father is is powerful in this story, just as it is in in Everything That Rises Must Converge in the Comforts of Home. But... um, as we'll see, Mr. Greenleaf, you know, is alive, and his sons, O.T. and E.T., <laughs> which is hilarious that he just named them letters. Uh, never, It never says what they stand for, although I think it's Ralph Wood that said he assumes that it means occupational therapy and <laughs> educational therapy. And so this idea of they're, they're named funny. after, like, social sciences... Uh, answers to like rehabilitation, I guess. Well, it's 
it is funny that their names are so similar and they're described as being so identical that, yes. you know, you, you can't tell them apart. And um, she, it's funny that Mrs. May really wants to believe that they can't stand each other and that they secretly fight all the time, but there's no evidence mm-hmm. to suggest that they actually, it seems like they are completely in sync and their, their wives are like the same and they have yeah. the same number of kids. And then Mrs. May's sons are completely at odds. They're opposites. Mm-hmm. They can't stand each other. Like, there, there seems to be something significant about that contrast between two brothers who are so harmonious and two brothers who are so agrimonious. So uh, the, the Greenleaf boys are twins, and like Whitney said, they are indistinguishable. Um, the only people that can, can distinguish them are the black people that work for them, uh, which I think is significant. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but... Um, but just this idea of here, here is this family that, against all odds, is prospering and prospering and prospering, and their name is the Green Leafs, which just sounds like, yeah, like a positive new, new fresh money. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so that they they are positive. They they have um, you know increasing uh, flourishing in their lives, and both boys uh, were. I think made officers in, in World War II, whereas um, Schofield never rises above private first class, and uh, Wesley's too too invalid to go to the war. And can Scott, I like just interject something relevant to yeah. this? I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on it because you're talking about how like the family that would consider itself to be classier, old money. It seems to be, like, the boys aren't going to marry and procreate, it seems like, and the family's just going to kind of, like, fizzle out here. Um, They're not succeeding in the world's terms at all. And there's this kind of recurring motif of um, getting some scrub strain into the herd. The bull is a scrub bull, and it's going to introduce some scrub stain into the herd. In other words, like... It's in, of inferior stock, right. but it's going to, like, graft and, in. And the May, the May family is uh, milk. They're milk farmers, and so they, they have all these cows that Miss May is terrified the bull is going to, you yeah. know, uh, mix with or whatever. And then um, this is kind of, I'm building yeah, yeah, to a point. Going. It's kind of yeah. all connected. Sorry, I'm taking just, so long. I was giving more, <laughs> giving more content. Yeah, um, so there's a scrub strain in the herd. Like, she's nervous that the um, OT and ET's bull is going to, like diminish the quality of the stock of her cattle. And then there's this recurrent kind of like (laughs) tormenting of Mrs. May by her sons about how they're going to marry some like white trash girl or marry someone like Mrs. Greenleaf and like basically introduce some scrub strain into the, Mm -hmm. her family. But then there's this weird moment that I did not think about that much when I taught this for some reason. But then this time I thought, Whoa, um, where Wesley is kind of meanly teasing his mother. And he says, um, let me tell you one thing, brother, that if you had half a mind, you would already know. That is that neither you nor me is her boy. Mm. And she gets really upset. Says that she rears up and runs from the room. Um, and then it's not really followed up that much more but he basically says like we're not really her children mm-hmm. and then at the bottom of that page when they start fighting you know how the mm-hmm. Wesleyans go feel like getting a fight and break like knock over the table and everything um 
Schofield says, nobody feels sorry for a lousy bastard like you. Now, obviously, it's just an insult, but in the context of Wesley having just said, we're not really her sons, calling him a bastard child, like, it's all strange. Like, I was wondering what you think about that moment. Yeah, there's, uh, I I marked a point. Um, This is... um, this is, I don't know, about a third of the way through the story where Mrs. May is talking to um, one of the black men that works for OT and ET. And she says, where's Mr. OT and ET? And he says, missed, missed, missed OT, he in town, missed ET, he off yonder in the field. So like I said, this, this you know, black farmhand knows the difference between the two, which I think is interesting that Mrs. May cannot make any difference between them, and yet, the, you know, the, the person of another race can. Um, and so it says, pointing first to the left and then the right, as if you were naming the, the position of two planets. Can you remember a message, she asked, looking as if she thought it this doubtful. I'll remember it if I don't forget it, hmm. he said with a touch of sullenness, which it's just such a... Flannery O'Connor is so funny. Like, that's just such a perfect line because it's, like, the kind of thing a person might actually say, but it's just, it's such a loaded phrase. Like, it's like, well, I'll remember it, maybe. It also, <laughs> to me, it is not, it's funny, but in keeping with her tendency, it's funny, but also serves a little function in characterization mm-hmm. because, to me, the whole story is a series of examples of Mrs. May having someone have more power than her. Mm-hmm. Like she thinks she rules with an iron hand, but everyone has, is getting the better of her all the time in different ways. And even this like black worker mm-hmm. um, is getting kind of getting one up on her by kind of just refusing to follow her orders. Right. He's like, well, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll remember if I remember, Yeah. what are you going to do about it? Like, I don't work for you. And that's, she's constantly being, belittled in these small ways and I I actually started tracking that as I read it the most recent time the different ways in which she seems weak Mm -hmm. despite thinking of herself as superior and we'll talk about the 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 female question we'll talk about that in a little bit uh because that comes up but um he says uh so, so she says um I'm Miss May she says she wrote their bull is on my place and I want him off today you can tell them I'm furious about it. And he says, that bull left here Saturday, and none of us ain't seen him since. We ain't, know, we ain't know where he was. Well, now you know, she said. And you can tell Mr. O.T. and Mr. E.T. that if they don't come get him today, I'm going to have their daddy shoot him the first thing in the morning. I can't have the bull ruining my herd. She handed him the note. If I knows Mr. O.T. and Mr. E.T., he said, taking it, they going to say you go ahead on you go ahead on and shoot him. He done busted up one of our trucks already, and we'd be glad to see the last of him. And mm-hmm. so I wrote at the bottom of that page: Does this story have miscegenation at its heart? And you know, this idea of miscegenation racially is a very loaded, uh, you know, discussion at this the point of this publication because I don't think that the um, the Virginia versus Loving is that the is that the case that ended racial uh, like like yeah like I believe so it, yeah. it made it legal that that people could get married interracially in Virginia uh, and I think 
maybe nas- nationwide. Um, so, so this is published in 1956. In that case, I'm almost positive it's 1957. And so um, that, that, lo- that line, like you said, I can't have that bull ruining my herd. Well, it's not going to ruin the herd. It's just going to procreate with the herd. But she has this idea that she has pristine cows that are somehow superior to the kind of cows that OT and ET could have. And yet, as we'll see, when she goes to see their their property, it's kind of like a lot of humble pie for her because she realizes Mm -hmm. they have taken full advantage of the government's assistance and they have made like a first-class dairy farm. And she's got this kind of hanging on by its fingernails dairy farm that she doesn't really she doesn't actually run. She just makes other people run. And that's, you know, that's a, a recurring theme. And several of the stories in this collection is like getting someone else to do the work for you, even if you pay them, is not the same as it being your business. And part of the issue is that she wants to be a lady. I would guess that yes. she still wants to be have Southern ladyhood, you know, and yes. a lady is not going to get her hands dirty actually running a dairy farm, right? She can superintend someone else running a dairy farm, but she can't, like, get in there and do it herself because that's just mm-hmm. not, it's not actually, like, ladylike. Yeah. So she needs to hold on to her limitations in order to keep this, kind of social class um, marker, you know, intact that's probably pretty important to her. Um, But you see her throughout the story trying to prove, really seeming pretty desperate to prove that she is better than the the green leaves, especially Mm -hmm. OT and ETs. I think she she feels pretty secure in being better than the parents, but she's not as secure. I mean, she goes to their pristine-looking milking parlor, Mm -hmm. and it's just like, Ugh, it's clean. I was hoping it would be dirty, right? Because that would make me feel like at least might keep my things clean, even if yeah. they didn't cost as much. Or how I love the part where she is seeing all of the children who are like milling about, eighteen yeah. OT's children, and they're speaking French because they're bilingual. Right, and their she, moms are from France. Yeah, and she doesn't speak French. Um, and it, you get the feeling she's a little self-conscious for a right. second, like, oh, you know, they know more languages than I do. Maybe they're more cultured than I am. Um, but then they start speaking English, and they have a country accent. That uh, One of the boys says, he ain't hair <laughs> about, <laughs> about his daddy. And Mrs. May says, ah, as if something had been proven. Just that little bit of a country accent. She's like, they're still rednecks. I'm still superior. Yeah. Good. And then she says, maybe you can come to my house and I'll t- teach you how to talk. And it's like, well, maybe they can come to your house and teach you French. Yeah. But, you know, she's just desperate for something to make her feel, okay, I'm still at the top of the, the ladder in yeah. this social situation. And I guess part of the way that she shows she's at the top of the ladder is that she has a white worker and that OT and ET have black workers. And so even though, you know, this the point of this story is almost 100 years after the Civil War, there's still this zeitgeist that says if you have white workers, you're higher class than if you have black workers. Partly, I would guess, although I'd have to look into this, but you'd have to pay them a little more. Of course, And yeah. so, like, I mean, think about Mr. Greenfield supporting this big family. He has five daughters plus OT and ET. Yeah. Um, he's supporting this whole family on whatever it is she's paying him. Yeah. Um, and, and we know Miss Greenleaf isn't working. 
Right. <laughs> so it's just kind of interesting to think, um, as much as she despises Mr. Greenleaf, she keeps saying things like, I, well, I have to be on him all the time to make him do any work, but at least he does ultimately do the work. And she kind of decided that he's still more trustworthy than whatever the replacement would be. Yeah. So I'm still on this. Uh, I don't know why this interaction is so powerful to me in the middle of this story, but it says, so, so uh, it says, if, my, if I know Miss OT and Miss ET, they're going to say, you go ahead, go ahead on and shoot him. He done busted up one of our trucks already, and we'd be glad to see the last of him. Now, if a black man had talked uh, in the royal we and included Mrs. May, she would have been aghast. Like, she would have just been like, how dare you say it's one of our trucks? Like, it's one of my trucks. Like, she would be very possessive of it because she, w- she has this racial hierarchy as well as social, uh, socioeconomic hierarchy. And so it says... They don't want him, so they just let him loose and expect somebody else to kill him. He's eating my oats and ruining my herd, and I'm expected to shoot him too. And the black guy says, I spec you is. Which is pretty. So a little later on the page, it says, um, he says something else that's a little, just a little rude, a little sharp to her, but he looks away as if this insolence were addressed to someone else. But he's being insolent. He's being rude toward her in a way that she probably feels she should be above and shielded from, yeah. but she does. That's what I mean about her powerlessness. She doesn't do anything right. about it. She, what well, is she going to do about it? And I don't, you know, the way I read it is I don't see him coming across as combative. No, I just see him coming across as like, I like, expect like, you. I don't work it says, for you. It says he said softly. Yeah. So it's like, he's got this deferential, um, you're a white woman, I'm a black man, I need to be deferential to you because that's the zeitgeist of even the 1950s in, in the South. But the the way he kind of makes it clear to her that it's her responsibility is a yeah. way of is a way of him showing he has the moral authority over her. And also the way he says the other thing you I think you mentioned, um I expect you just never heard them quarrel, nor nobody else heard them neither. It's just, mm-hmm. he's correcting her. Right, he's right. like, you know, putting in her place just a little, but not incredibly rudely. But then he looks at her and says, is you my policy man's mother? <laughs> and whether he knows it or not, that is the best way to get her go, right? And she... With she a, gets mad with a, with a gleam of recognition. Yeah, I mean, just just that. Like he's oh, like, is she is she my boss? <laughs> it's so funny to think about him just like going from this kind of like, I'm forcing myself to be subservient to a mm. white woman to being like, oh, your son is, you know, I I I pay for what your son gives. Yeah, it it brings her away. Yeah, yeah, we're in business together. I'm I'm the customer, and the customer's always right. I mean, it's just it's a it's amazing how quickly her, her uh, superiority just gets. It, it's almost like unscrewing a screw. Like yeah. at first, it's it's locked in tight, and by the end of this conversation, it feels like it's like wobbling and about to fall out all together. And two sentences later, or so she says, "I might as well be working for them." Yes. So yes. she she already feels like the tables are turned, and then two sentences after that, she's saying, "I'm the victim. I've always been the victim." Earlier, she kept saying, "I." I've got an iron hand. I have to rule this place with an iron hand. And now it's almost like she's decided in this way that feels 
oddly modern, maybe, that being the victim is a way to exert power in this situation. Yes. Especially, yes. she's a victim not as a human individual who's just like a loser, but she's a victim as a woman, so it's unjust yeah. in a kind of broader sense. So, <laughs> then Wesley says, pass the butter to the victim. <laughs> I mean, it, it just... And that's very similar to Mary George yes. and the Enduring Chill. There's, there are these, the artist goes to the gas chamber yes, as these, he's going in the house. These um, characters in some of Flannery O'Connor's stories that are so... Um, they, they just assail the pride of, of whoever the, the central character is. Like and, little smarty pants characters who yes, aren't doing much with their intelligence. Exactly. So they use it to be mean to their family members. Yes. <laughs> and so... It's funny that Flannery O'Connor clearly has some of these elements in her own personality, and I think that she does a good job in these in these stories of creating characters that are separate enough from her that you believe it's not her, but that still have this... I mean, this is set on a milk farm. Andalusia was a milk farm. I mean, you know, she's uh, she's not 35 when she's writing this, but she's, you know, sh- she's more like... Wesley than Schofield and so so there's like a place for her in this and yet she doesn't it, it's not an autobiographical story to to any extent it just has just enough familiarity for her to be able to tell it with a conviction that she couldn't tell if she had just conjured these characters from nothing like you, you could believe that there was a real Mr. Greenleaf that was I mean I read this story, and I, I couldn't stand Mr. Greenleaf. He is so annoying to me. He's so just thick. I mean, I don't know what else, what, what other word to use, and I'm not talking about T-H-I-C-C. I'm talking about... We don't know. Maybe he is. Well, maybe he is. He, We're not, you know, it's not described. <laughs> prob- probably it. Miss, Mrs. Greenleaf is big. Yeah. So... Um, no, you're, I know what you mean, though. He's... He's infuriating. He's like... Slow is the first word that comes into my mind. But, like, it's funny, I think, that his slowness and his just sort of, like, he's at his leisure. That phrase is used to describe him. Um, Phrases like that Mm -hmm. quite a few times. He's at his leisure. He does things at his leisure when he wants to. Um, Never in a hurry to do anything, which for a woman, you know, I I can understand that where my employee would drive me nuts too I probably would have fired him if I were her because I'm like not that patient of a person um but at the same time like he's he's loitering he's she's like he might be asleep just like his wife falls asleep over her hole full of newspaper clippings when he's going to find the bull but I found it very interesting that at the end of the story Right before she's about to get gored, Mrs. May suddenly is really sleepy, and she like starts falling asleep. And it actually intersperses. It's saying that she's really sleepy, and then saying that he's Mr. Greenleaf is like lazy, and he's probably loitering, and he and his wife are like never like hardworking and alert. And she says, "We well, you know what? I've got every right to be tired because before any kind of judgment seat, I'll be able to say I've worked. I've not mm-hmm. wallowed." I think the basis for her feeling of superiority over the Greenleafs is that she thinks they're lazy and they're not industrious and they don't like do things well and efficiently. And toward the end of the story, as she's approaching her death, she starts to feel lazy and like she can't accomplish anything and she doesn't have any like get up and go herself. So it's like she's truly like 
entering their level, I guess Mm -hmm. you might say, but she makes that excuse for herself. It's like there's a, a Nickel Creek song that has the lyric, Others have excuses. I have my reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how, what's happening with her here is that she says, well, Mr. Greenleaf is lazy, right? He just makes excuses for not working harder. I have a great reason for not working hard right now because I have been a hardworking person in my whole life. No one can judge me before any judgment seat. I can stand up and say I've worked. I, I don't want to use names because I want to protect the <laughs> the semi-innocent, but... Mr. Greenleaf reminds me of a certain person who comes to our house once every three months. If you know who I'm talking about, (laughs) listen to this. It says, I don't care where you put him, she said. You're supposed to have some sense. Put him where he can't get out. Whose bull is he? For a moment, Mr. Greenleaf seemed to hesitate between silence and speech. He studied the air to the left of him. He must be somebody's bull, he said after a while. Yes, he must, she said, and shut the door with a precise little slam. He knows whose bull it is, and he doesn't answer because it's his son's bull. And, and you know, I, I understand the very beginning of this story is in her head, but she's right to assume that he would say the same kind of thing that he said before, which is what, what he explains explicitly later in the story is, well, my sons don't respect you because you have two sons and they don't work for you. Yeah. And, and and basically this idea of like, well, if it had been my sons, they wouldn't have let their mama get out and, and have to yeah. drive to the help's house to find someone to shoot this well, bull this or corral it. parallelism that you're bringing mm-hmm. out that is so interesting that she has sons who are perceived as not being hardworking. She perceives Mr. Greenleaf as not being hardworking. Mm-hmm. She perceives herself as very hardworking. It's like she thinks, in a, if she would let herself admit it, she thinks OTDT should be her sons because they have the, like, Interesting. self-improving, industrious, get-up-and-go motivation that she has. And she kind of does feel like these, like, so sons who really don't have much initiative or ambition should be the Greenleaf sons. And that, that idea is confused throughout the story, right? Like, whether mm-hmm. or not her sons are are fit to be her sons or not, whether they're appropriate sons for her or not. Um, and it just all sort of plays into this idea of like who has power and who doesn't and where does your sense of like pride and superiority come from? Cause I, I think that Mr. Greenleaf is described as powerful in spite of his like laziness several times. Like there's one great example, um, maybe five pages in that says she had spent 15 years coping with Mr. Greenleaf and by now handling him had become second nature with her, which that makes it sound like she's in control. But then the next sentence says his disposition on any particular day was as much a factor in what she could and couldn't do as the weather was. And she had learned to read his face the way real country people read the sunrise and sunset. If she is describing him as being a force on a level with what the weather that completely allows or disallows any work on a farm on any given day, he's more powerful than she is, even though he's her employee. Well, and it's interesting. It's, you know, she sets up this dichotomy between Mr. Greenleaf and Mrs. Greenleaf. It says, beside the wife, Mr. Greenleaf was an aristocrat. Now, (laughs) this story from the very 
you know, before I even read it, I just thought it was going to be about Mrs. Greenleaf. I don't know why. I think it's because it's about Mrs. May, and I thought, okay, well, it's going to be a contrast between Mrs. May and Mrs. Greenleaf. And there is that implied contrast. But it's not really about Mrs. Greenleaf. It's really about Mr. Greenleaf and O.T. and E.T., so it's really about the Greenleaf family. And to some extent, it's about the May family. And, of course, May, the month of May, you know, you think, okay, well, that's, you know, the height of spring. But really, this idea of Greenleaf, it it extends from, you know, whenever your season of spring starts, March, through you know, August, September, October, and in, in, in Georgia, sometimes it's December. But I think that that's an interesting, you know, naming for these two families because Greenleaf sounds like it, it's just alive and flourishing, like you said at the beginning, whereas May is uh, a limited time, and May obviously has this might, might not, you know, it's, it's conditional. It's not, it, you know, has the word has this implied... Um, uh, like like it's not all powerful, right? And so, I just thinking about those names, and of course Wesley and Schofield are are you know loaded names. Wesley, John Wesley, and you know the, the Wesley family that started the Methodist Church, and then Schofield. I think it's George Schofield. I'm not maybe I'm not getting that first name right, but that's also a prominent minister. I think in the 18th century in America. Um, where it's almost like this kind of, because I mean, I know that Methodism is a relatively like upstart religion compared to some like the Catholic Church, right. but it was well established in Georgia by that time. Right. Whereas, to me, it feels like the Greenleaf family is associated with this kind of vocal evangelical religion. Yeah, almost, like, would you call it Pentecostal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly Mrs. Greenleaf, um, but even there are little moments where, like, Mr. Greenleaf says, um, she says, <laughs> um, well, I'll give you a little bit more context. Mr. Greenleaf says, uh, my boy's done it, meaning installing a milk and parlor, but all boys ain't alike. Of course, being subtly mean about right. the Schofield boys. I mean, the Schofield boys, the May boys. Yeah. Um, and she says, no, indeed, I thank God for that. So someone's like, she's trying to get back at him yes. by saying like, yeah, I'm thankful my boys don't like your boys. And then he says, I thank God for everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like he's one-upping her, you know, religiously speaking. But we know that she doesn't literally thank God for much. She doesn't really believe in God. We're told that explicitly, that yeah. she she has a respect for religion but doesn't believe any of it. So she's just using it as a, as a common conventional phrase to say, I thank God for that. And he makes it kind of literal, like, I thank God for everything. How about you? But all that to say that the Greenleaves are associated with, with religious faith that seems to be more vital. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird, right? But it's like alive. Mm. Um, I love the part where Mrs. Greenleaf is shrieking like, Jesus stabbed me in the heart. Jesus stabbed me in the heart because she just cares so much. And it's like, I think Flannery O'Connor, something Robert Cole said about her is that she is just never going to let a person of the spirit be at a disadvantage Mm -hmm. in her stories as compared to a person who's not a person of the spirit. So like no matter how weird that passion for spiritual things Mm -hmm. looks when it manifests, she is going to 
just give a certain kind of respect or priority or something or victory to a person of the spirit over a person who is just a person of the flesh, I guess you would say, you know, of, of the world. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, you know, I, this article about um, the Protestant conversion tales, you know, obviously Greenleaf is, is one of them, as I mentioned. And um, just this idea of like, oh, well, that's what, that's what the purest faith looks like, is, is wanting, wanting God not just to transform your attitude, but to literally kill you. I mean, Mrs. Greenleaf is saying, stab me in the heart. And ironically, who gets stabbed in the heart? Mrs. May. And so this concept of she doesn't want God to partially transform her. She wants this, like, justification with sanctification rolled in in a two-for-one, buy-one, get-one. Until you die, you can't live. You have to be crucified with Christ. Yeah. And so she's, she's not asking for gradual sanctification. She's acting, she's asking for this suddenness and the people that she's praying for. To me, Mrs. Greenleaf is very grotesque because it's, it's just so I don't want to use the word vulgar because I, I believe it's sincere faith, but yeah. it, it seems just it's like sacred un- unseemly. and profane yes. come together somehow. Unseemly. Yeah. Now, it makes me think of that, um, you know, I, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a Simon Shama power of art about it, the, the ecstasy of St. Teresa. Is that the right statue? You know that, what I'm talking about? That seems right. Where she's basically experiencing the Holy Spirit and it looks like she's having <clears throat> the climax of pleasure <laughs> to, yeah. to, to say yeah. it euphemistically. Yeah. Um, That's and, common actually in like saints mm-hmm. memoirs. Like, you know, if you read like Julian of Norwich is a yeah. English speaking um, version of that. But yeah, this idea that Jesus as the lover of your soul you know, in like a Song of Solomon kind of like yeah. sense, um, I think m- most people find that to be a kind of grotesque idea, even though it's an idea that has a scriptural precedent. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, even just, okay, not just the, the vulgarness of, I mean, she's lying flat on the dirt trying to like wrap her arms and legs around the earth. Like it, it, all of it is so vi- physical. But there's also a vulgarity in a different sense of vulgar, as in vulgar, vulgar as in like of the people, like, you know, very like low about how she cuts pictures about of like movie stars who are getting divorced Mm -hmm. out of the newspaper and like buries them in a hole and prays for them. And I think there's something to me that's like kind of beautiful about this impulse to be like, look, there's a lot of suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. Movie stars are suffering. There are train wrecks or plane crashes. Like people are suffering all over. Let me care about them. Let me pray for them. Let me sorrow over it. But can you imagine if a person like cut pictures of, you know, like Kim Kardashian and Kanye West out of the like gossip magazines and like was praying over them and then like did a little ritual over them. We'd be like, this is nuts because it feels like the grotesque, if you just find a grotesque is a mixture of high and low that feels jarring, I think that sacred impulse plus something that feels so of the moment and so kind of like... Exactly. Yeah, it yeah. it can feel laughable, but 
Flannery O'Connor, I think, is pretty committed to showing that the sacred God himself can just intrude on every aspect of life. There's not places, Mrs. May thinks there are places where it's it's okay to think about and mention God, and there are other places where it's tacky. Mm-hmm. And this is, Mrs. Gre- Greenleaf completely breaks down that distinction. Well, just that, you know, it says every day she cut out all the morbid, cut all the morbid stories out of the newspaper, the accounts of women who had been raped and criminals who had escaped and children who had been burned and of the train, of train wrecks and plane crashes and the divorces of movie stars, which is like the divorces of movie stars, which divorce is a very sad thing. But that one being tacked on the end, it just makes it black humor to me. Like an like, anticlimactic like, third yes. instead of a climactic third it's, it's item. It's just this yeah. like dark black humor that, yeah. that Flannery is so famous for. And and just thinking about, gosh, like all of those things are awful. And actually most of those things <laughs> happen in Flannery O'Connor's stories. Uh, criminals who escaped, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Women who've been raped, uh, June, I mean, not Star, June Star, Star Drake, you know, mm-hmm. is is alluding to being raped m- many times, although it says she was a congenital liar. But in The Violent Buried Away, we know that the main character is raped. Yes, um, yes. And it's almost, I think, portrayed as like one of those moments of grace. Like mm-hmm. it, it opens them up to God's grace. I mean, so that's about as dark as you can get when yes. you talk about like the savage grace. On that same page, too, that you're looking at, it says... Um, Mrs. May stopped still, one hand lifted to her throat. The sound was so piercing that she felt as if some violent unleashed force had broken out of the ground and was charging toward her. Now that definitely Ooh, foreshadowing where, the bull. Where is that? It's oh, like, I got it. I got yeah, it. Yeah, two yeah, or three paragraphs yeah, yeah. after that, what you were just reading. Um, but this idea that Mrs. May is sensing that the force that's going to come charge her soon is being kind of unleashed by Mrs. Greenleaf, right? Yes. Like the, the force of God's spirit. Um, it says her second thought was more reasonable. Someone had been hurt on the place and would sue her for everything she had. So she had a little moment of letting the reality, the spiritual reality break in upon her, and then she reasoned it away. And she says she had no insurance, it's kind of ironic because her son's an insurance yes. agent. But also this idea that, like, there's kind of no insurance that's going to save you from hell, right? Like, True. I think that's hinted at there. She well, is vulnerable. It's inter- It's very interesting that you said that. that we're, we're about to get to my, you know, reveal about my theory about the bull. Um, there's so many other things to talk about, but I'm just, you know, going to talk about the bull now. And we can <laughs> double back on some of these things. Um, it says on the second to last page of my edition... She thought of it almost with pleasure as if she had hit on the perfect ending for a, for a story she was telling her friends. Then she dropped it for Mr. Greenleaf had a gun with him and she had insurance. But it says she doesn't have insurance. Yes, I noticed that contradiction too. It's weird. Yeah, so, so I thought about that. But you say that she has no insurance and there's this idea of like something's going to break out of the ground and charge toward her. Now... It's possible that could be God. But let's think about who, you know, generally speaking, is thought of as living underground. It's not God. It's Satan. It's the gentleman. Uh Uh-huh. Satan is referred to as the old gentleman. Yeah, you're right. And the bull is referred to as the gentleman. And the bull, I will say this, that the bull... She says, get away from here, sir, first. Yeah. But, But... 
Mr. Greenleaf refers to him as the gentleman, and then she starts referring to him as the gentleman. The the bull is described as a pagan god. More, I mean, he's described as a god right. and has a crown of thorns, which makes you think or a of crown, Christ, a prickly crown. But yeah. it can also that can also have, I think, some pagan associations. Yes. And so, yes, I, I, I see what you mean for sure. And obviously, it's alluding to Greek myth, um, but you know, also this idea that like that paganism kind of what she worshipped is what embraces her in the end. Um, but here's a here's a counterpoint, something to think about. Well, let me, let me, oh, let yeah, me yeah, flesh this out okay, a lot sorry. more because that was just the beginning of it. Okay. okay. So, um, so I say that and then, you know, we get all of these times that they refer to the bull as the gentleman. And... Um, there's this idea that he's been like gnawing away at her property and he's like right outside her house. And so there's this idea that the bull is, you know, right outside waiting to devour her like a roaring lion. Mm -hmm. Now I say that because there's this element of, You know, they're they're just it says they was just going to beef him, but he got loose and run his head into their pickup truck. He don't like cars and trucks. They had a long a time getting his horn out of the fender, and when they finally got him loose, he took off and they was too tired to run after him. But I never known that that, that was him there. And so there's this element of they want to destroy the bull. And it says he likes to bust loose, Mr. Greenleaf said, looking with approval at the bull's rump. This gentleman is a sport. And I don't know why, but I just kept looking back. Because the, the second time that I read this was when I started thinking of the bull as, as Satan. And what I've thought about is, what if she is, like, she, she has no insurance against Satan? But then at the end of the story, it says she has insurance, thinking she does, because she's got this attitude toward religion of, like, religion should be kept at church. And, like, she's a perfectly good Christian, oh, although yeah. she doesn't believe any of it. You've heard, often heard people describe, like, having a superficial kind of, like, prophylactic belief in God where you, like, go to church on Easter as having insurance against hell, like fire insurance. Yeah, you know, that's a common phrase. And so I say all that because there's just this, I don't know what it is, but it's as quick as a snake striking, Mr. Greenleaf uh-huh. said, you got two boys, they know you got two men on the place. So there, there are these elements of Satan and serpents. Yeah. And, and, and I think that Mr. Greenleaf is connected to the bull to a certain degree. Well, like, okay... The way that she, it keeps describing the bull is like eating away at her property yes. and like slowly destroying her. I feel like that's how she thinks of Mr. Greenleaf too. Like she could be prosperous and happy and successful, except that he's like slowly just eating away, like by just basically not doing a good job for her and wasting yeah. her resources. I saw some connection there. And it says on my page 49, this is about four pages for the end. The gentleman is waiting for you, she said. And gave Mr. Greenlee's furious profile a sly look. Run him into that next pasture, and when you get him, when you get him in, I'll drive in behind you and shut the gate off. And I, I just think 
Satan is waiting for her the whole story. I don't think the way that she, the, her attitude toward faith is so antagonistic, especially yeah. to Mrs. Greenleaf. So you're saying she's showing a healthy respect for Satan by calling him like the gentleman that she wouldn't actually even show for Jesus? Yes. But yes. she's like, I can fence you in and keep you contained, but I like have a respect for just kind of like worldliness and like that selfish, satanic impulse of pride. Yeah. That makes, I mean, you know, I well, see and, that. And, and so, so I say that and... You know, the ending where she, she's gored by the bull, it says, one of the horns sank until it pierced her heart and the other curved around her side and held her in an unbreakable grip. And it says, she continued to stare straight ahead, but the entire scene in front of her had changed. The tree line was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky. And she had the look of a person whose sight had suddenly been restored, but who mm-hmm. finds the light unbearable. And Satan... You know, when he was in heaven, was Lucifer the angel of light? And not only that, but if you think of that light as being God's light, she would not be able to bear it if she were not someone who had, like, come to reconciliation with God, right? Seeing God when you've not been reconciled to God is killing. It's unbearable. And so, okay, I think this guy almost entirely consistently represents God the sun in the sky and yes, Flannery O'Connor. Yes. And I actually think the tree line usually represents like our efforts to hold him out, to not see the sky, you not look past the tree line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there it says the tree line was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky. Suddenly the re- spiritual reality is overwhelming her in this moment as she's dying, right? The, the world's nothing but sky. Like imagine she can see nothing but the spiritual reality yes. all of a sudden. Um, the tree line is just, like, broken down. It's just a wound. It's, like, yes. not even there to, like, bolster her and support mm-hmm. her anymore. Because often in these stories, people will look at the tree line and be like, that's the border of my property. I'm in control here. Yes. You know? Um, so I think even if you think of the bull as being a satanic force or a pagan force or whatever, you you know, right. uh, which makes sense to me, and I'm glad you brought yeah. it up, I think that last moment is her seeing spiritual reality and just saying, like, it's more than I can Yes. Bear, yeah. And that's what um, Ralph Wood said. I think it was on a podcast. I think it was actually the podcast that the Close Reads people did interviewing him. He said that she's turned upside down, like, when she gets gored. And so she sees the sky as the ground, Uh, which is really powerful. Like you were saying, like, she sees the solid ground that you can stand on as God's property and that everything else is just ephemeral sky you know like what the way we see sky is like oh those are clouds but they'll be gone or we won't be able to see them when the sun goes down or whatever and it says you know this idea of the bull is killed by mr greenleaf which is interesting the (laughs) the article about six conversion six protestant conversion tales says mr greenleaf enacts the force of the law as do mr mrs may's two sons and just that idea of like, I, I don't know. Oh, ooh. It says Mr. Greenleaf, though a desultory worker, has fox-colored eyes that discern Mrs. May's faults as if she were challenged by the devil himself. Now that's on five eighteen. Is that is that analogous to your no. pages? Okay, never mind. Let me find it real quick because that the fox-colored eyes. Well, no, the fox-colored eyes is early. Yeah, it's on like the second. Challenged by the devil himself is. Gonna, I'm just gonna find it, but it's. But but that that's in there, 
it's it's like who it, who is the devil in this story? Well, it's not one of the Green Leaves. It's it's like if you had to say who's the most devilish character in this story, I would say it's Miss May. Well, yeah, because Mister to me, Mister Greenleaf, it's a little ambivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of like, he doesn't seem to be clearly an agent of God, or I mean, it's almost like he reveals her attitudes most effectively. Like, she thinks of the Greenleafs as scrub humans. Yes, like she explicitly says, explicitly it says that. All, um, all her resources returned in full strength as if she had only needed to be challenged by the devil himself uh, right, to right. regain them. Yeah. That's what I... That's why this idea of at the end, there's this, like, um, this idea that she she's had this encounter with some strange god that it talks about at the very beginning of the story, mm-hmm. that that she's encountering something that will kill her, which is, mm-hmm. like following Satan's way of being mm-hmm. like, did God really say that? Like, yeah. you know, challenging, basically challenging the faith of Mrs. Greenleaf. Like, why would anyone like that get to go to heaven and then I don't? Right. Like, because she, I mean, maybe even her, like, clinging to the dirt is supposed to represent how she's seen by Mrs. May as just being dirty. I mean, she mentions yes. the dirtiness yes. several times, but also just as low as you can get, right? Like, or yes. something... Oh, gosh, and, and that part right before she runs into Mrs. Greenleaf doing her, like, prayer healings. Yes. Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. May, you know what I'm going to say. Yeah. She's walking through these this, like, wooded path and hitting the ground in case she sees a snake. Yes. Hitting the ground with a stick over and over again in case she sees a snake. Um, and then also at the same time, she is, um, like, rehearsing asserting herself she finds it so hard to assert herself against these people who she thinks of as so like low and pathetic she has to rehearse when she's like walking along by herself she's like mr greenleaf i cannot afford to pay for your mistakes i am a poor woman and this place is all i have i have two boys to educate she has to rehearse being assertive with her employee um and it's funny because her version of being assertive here is basically saying like i am pitiful please feel sorry for me and don't take advantage of me yes um and she's scared of snakes the whole time, which in yes. light of everything else you're saying is pretty significant. Now, I say all this because, to me, this story, as we're about to talk about the Enduring Chill, this story is very similar to the Enduring Chill. Like, there's this, it's going to get you mm-hmm. feel. Like, this person has no, <laughs> has no chance to escape in the end. And... Um, I don't know why, but just as I read it, like, calling the bull the gentleman, like, that was just such an interesting... Yeah. Like, no, I like I like the way you're thinking about it. I think this idea that something representing Satan can also be a moment of, like, at least spiritual clarity for her. Yes, yes. And then when she, it says she's, you know, she's dying, and, and it says um, when Mr. Greenleaf reached her to to be bent over whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear. Like, what if she's whispering to Satan, like, you know, uh, you know, like, like, like now I see that God, God is the author of life and death, not you, or something like that. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just spitballing we at this just point. We don't know, yeah. But it's just interesting to think about, like, could Flannery O'Connor have made, you know, something demonic in a story the same way that she makes something 
uh, graceful or something holy. Now, I will say, when, when Mrs. May goes into the, the milking barn, it says she opened the milking room door and stuck her head in, and for the first second she felt as if she were going to lose her breath. The spotless white concrete room was filled with sunlight that came from a row of windows head high along both walls. The, be- the metal stanchions gleamed ferociously, and she had to squint to be able to look at all. Mm-hmm. She drew her head out of the room quickly and closed the door and leaned against it, frowning. The light outside was not so bright, mm-hmm. but she was conscious that sun was directly on top of her head, like a silver bullet ready to drop into her brain. And so... Um, she thinks she's going to shoot that bull, but this is like the sun representing Ooh, God trying to trying to sh- shoot yeah. her and with shoot her with her inferiority with her yes, humil with yes. the humility that yes. she needs. Yeah, and so um, it's almost like you will either be humbled or be destroyed by Satan. Mm-hmm. Like, there's another place that's really similar to that yeah. too. A few pages later, that says um, that she has a dream. Um, she can hear the bull mm-hmm. chewing, chewing, chewing. Um, she has a dream, and it says she became aware after a time that the noise was the sun trying to burn through the tree line. Ooh. And she stopped to watch, safe in the knowledge that it couldn't, that it had to sink the way it always did outside of her property. Mm-hmm. When she first stopped, it was a swollen red ball. But as she stood watching, it began to narrow and pale until it looked like a bullet. Yes. Then suddenly it burst through the tree line and raced down the hill toward her. Like a bullet, like the bull. Yes. Yes. And and just, you know, it's such a powerful ending because it, it's like you kind of see it coming the whole time, but it, it's shocking at the end. And... Um, I, I don't know, just to some reason, for some reason, this, this description of the milk room, it seems very heavenly to me. Yeah. And so it's like she goes into heaven for a second. She's mm-hmm. like, I can't look at it. Like I think she, it is because yeah. it's like people, she she's based her, her pride on thinking herself better than those people. Yes. And that milking parlor, for a moment, could let her into this reality that she's mm-hmm. she's not so great, but but nor should she be so obsessed with her own superiority yes. and greatness that's hindering her from being able to see God. Yes. She, she has a moment where she could get some insight and she says, no, 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 no. You know, Oof. she shuts it out. Oof. <laughs> this is where I'm really getting English majory. What if Mr. Greenlee's been working for her for 15 years? Flannery, I'm pretty sure, went to college when she was 16. I, I might be wrong on that date. If she went to college in 1941 when she's 16 or, you know, 42, whatever, 15 years later is 1956 when the story is published. What if this tenure of work that Mr. Greenleaf has done on this property is like Flannery's metaphor saying this this bull killing Miss May is the bull killing the 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 part of me that's tethered to earth and I'm going to be the Greenleaf's property going forward. Like I'm going to be Christ's property, you know, moving into the rest of my career till I die. Like this is the last story I'm going to tell about good country people and, and like kind of have this like good man's hard to find era storytelling and really becomes much more explicitly 
Christian in her discussions of faith. Yeah. Like, like to me, the stories of A Good Man is Hard to Find have Christian elements, but they're so grotesque. Like, they're so... They're so unorthodox and like yeah. marginal, and they aren't this kind of mainline Protestant or certainly Catholic. And this and, one's not as explicit as the later stories, but you're right. I think it make it makes a move that I like a lot toward faith in Jesus being portrayed explicitly as something that like is meant to upend your life. Yes. It's meant to be yes. like falling in love where you would do anything yes. for it and it changes everything for mm. you. Um, mm. It's not convenient or comfortable. Yeah. Well, and this idea of like Mr. Greenleaf is always slow to work. Like he'll do it, but he's like, I'm doing those milk jugs you asked me to do two weeks ago. And she's like, I want to do this other thing. And, and it says he shot the bull four times through the eye. Now, I was thinking about this. M- maybe my math is wrong. But, like, Jesus has a hole in his hands. That's two. Hole through at least, you know, one hole through the feet. And I'm counting the crown of thorns as, like, one hole. So it's, like, this idea of being shot four times. Jesus has these... Or I know he's piercing the side. That's what I was thinking. The fourth hole is the piercing the side that the Roman soldiers do to prove that he's dead. And so this idea of like it takes four shots to kill the bull. There are four, you know, holes in Jesus on the cross, not including the crown of thorns. And and so I don't know. It's just interesting to think about like I do think that there is a a Christ-like godly uh, infusion in the bull. Like the bull can be representative of mm-hmm. the grace of God being very violent. Because she just displays the grace of God as violent in yes. so many stories. It just makes sense that that could be what's happening and, here. And this idea that like God has grace, you know, f- for every person and yet he can turn someone over to Satan. Yeah. Like, and she might not, she may or may not accept the grace in that last moment when she's like making that last confession. Yes. And so like something about the description of the bull where it says he was crossing the pasture toward her yes. at a slow gallop, a gay, almost rocking gait as if he were overjoyed to find mm-hmm. her again. There's something about that that like, um, makes me think of it as being God. Like, mm-hmm. like the prodigal son's father just yeah. running yeah. toward him. Yeah. Um, and the prodigal son seems like reluctant to even be run toward, you know, reluctant. Yeah. Yeah. He, re- he seems reluctant to accept yeah. the love, but the, the father is just like running so eagerly and lovingly. Um, and it says she remained perfectly still, not in fright, but in a freezing unbelief. Yes. And it says, so it says on 52, well, where did I, I just marked it. Um, she had the look of a person whose sight had been suddenly restored, but who finds the light unbearable. So it's like that same blinding light that she gets going into the milk room. It also says on 51, um, those her, through her closed eyes, she could feel the sun red hot overhead. She opened her eyes slightly, but the white light forced her to close them again. And I don't, I mean, I do think at the end of this story, she is just like, I can't, except that God 
would listen to the prayers of someone like Mrs. Greenlee. Yeah. Or that that is what God wants. Yes. Because yes, I hate exactly. everything she is. Yes, exactly. But, exactly. you know, it's funny that in this story, heat seems to represent God's spirit, fervor and heat, mm-hmm. and this coldness, this freezing unbelief, this, it seems, and, and trying to just be sort of like, like proper and appropriate mm-hmm. and it seems to represent, you know, something this unbelief or even satanic. But in the enduring chill, the chill becomes an agent of God's grace. So God is not at all limited in what can manifest as an agent of grace, right? Like it's yes. so very like the, the I'm, I'm kind of transitioning to some extent, but in the enduring chill, obviously the enduring chill is what brings him to God in the first place, his enduring chill. But then at the very end, you talked about the the bird on the ceiling that is covered in icicles. Yes. Um, it represents the Holy Spirit. So, yes. you know, just the, the variety of, of things that she can use to symbolize God's work in your life or represent or... or, or um, I almost hesitate to use the word symbolize because it seems right. so abstract. But, I mean, I think it's, it is clear that like a, a bird-shaped ceiling crack is sort yeah. of, is a symbol but at the same time it becomes powerful it's yeah. not just a, a a symbol that you could just deal with politely right it it overtakes his mind yeah the same way that the bull kills her i mean all she had to do was just move i think that is indicative of the fact that for her symbols the word symbol is a weak word. Yes. Like the way yes. that at a party, this is a famous anecdote, where at a party once someone said, well, don't you think the Eucharist is a nice symbol, right? Mm-hmm. It's some, the, the, the bread just symbolizes Jesus' body. And she says something like, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. Mm-hmm. She she was like, it's not just a symbol, right? That symbol sounds like kind of an intellectual exercise. Yeah. And she's like, these Things that become sacramental in Christian faith have actual power. And we see that in Scripture that, like, yeah. if you take the Eucharist or the, the communion, bread and wine, mm-hmm. as we would say as Protestants, if you take it and you're not a believer in Christ, it can have ill effects on your body. Like yeah. We're told that in the New Testament. There's, it's not just a symbol in that sense, right? Because God has said it has spiritual power. Well, she's applying that to cracks on a ceiling and a bull like she they have power and and just like the the fact that mrs may is referred to someone that has a large respect for religion so it says she was a good christian woman with a large respect for religion who did not of course believe any of it was true and that phrase did not of course believe any of it was true that's almost verbatim what it says about mrs dalloway Mm -hmm. and and this attitude of like I'm a Christian because I live in a Christian society. Like that religion is good for society in some abstract yeah, like, way. Like yeah. I, I was born in a Christian uh, nation, so therefore I'm a Christian. You know that that may work in ancient Israel because you're born to Jewish parents, but. That doesn't work in the modern world. It's not something that you just um, deny, but is still true about you, you know? Well, like, when I became a Christian in high school, and uh, the the people around me who weren't Christians, which is pretty much everyone at that point, 
who I was close to, they all said, oh, great, you know, that's nice. We'll come watch you get baptized. That's sweet. Yes. But then when I started taking it seriously and changing things about my life and making different friends and, like, reading the Bible all the time and talking about it with people at school, those same people sometimes were like, don't be a fanatic. What are you doing? This is embarrassing. This is mm-hmm. too extreme. Like, I thought about the displaced person. Yes. Um, it says about Mrs. McIntyre, who's very like Mrs. May, I think. Yes. But Mrs. McIntyre in that story says, Christ in the conversation embarrassed her the way sex had her mother. Mm. And that's, Mrs. May says, like, there's certain words that should be kept inside the bedroom. There's this idea of, like, don't mention sex outside of the bedroom. And I think that's a very modern perspective that these, like, sort of country women are, you know encapsulating in an interesting way which is your religion is entirely private and just don't bring it up in the public space over yeah. people you don't, don't know really well yeah and it's like i hate to break it to every person listening but like i would rather you go to heaven than hell and the only way to get to heaven is through faith in christ and if you don't put your faith in that then i'm gonna be in heaven with christ and i'm gonna miss you but you know that that's the thing is like I, it's part of being a Christian to want other people to be Christians, it's it's actually denying Christ to say you don't need Christ. Because if I actually believe it's true, and I don't want to tell you about it, I'm really being incredibly callous towards you, right? Like I don't yes. care about you at all if I don't want you to believe it too. Because, it, like, use it, Tim Keller's you know illustration. If I had a cure for cancer and I decided to keep it private because really. It was just for me and my closest friends and family. That would be so selfish. Mm-hmm. I think we could all understand that's selfish. Well, if I really believe that I have the cure for our sin and our shame and our brokenness, and I say, well, I don't really need to share that. It's just for my friends and family. How, yeah. how selfish. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm the first to admit, like, I'm a terrible deliverer of, of the gospel and the good news. Like, I, I don't. I don't bring it up enough with people that, that don't know Christ, and and that's on me. That's not a failure of Christ. That's just my own pride, really, saying, yeah. like, I, I don't think I can actually, like, it's saying, like, mm, I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. Kind yeah. of the comforts of home from last or like, episode. like, what will people think of me? Yeah. I'm not sure they'll receive it well. And that's, you know, I, I do feel like reading these stories has really empowered me to just say, like, I need to, I need to just be frank with people. And, and, you know, that's what Flannery is doing with these stories is she went from wanting to be a great writer to wanting her great faith to be the, the thing that people knew about her writing. And I love the fact that that took so much courage for her mm-hmm. as a person who really had a lot of literary friendships who were, they were important to her, yes. you know, and she was isolated in her home with her mother and those friendships through letters and occasional visits with people from the literary world who were intelligent, interesting, were so important to her. She had to know that she might alienate some of those people pretty seriously by becoming more explicit about her faith and her writing, or she might lose her respect as a creator. And she did it anyway it reminds me of the priest in The Enduring Chill, actually. Yeah. I love this priest. Like, Asbury's expecting to get a priest who's going to, like, talk James Joyce with him, which would have been the kind of accommodating thing for the priest to do. Right. But the priest is so blunt. 
And he's not at all, like, personally angry with Asbury or Asbury's mother, but he's like, listen, Asbury, you're a lazy, selfish boy who hasn't accomplished anything. Lazy, selfish, conceited youth, I think is what he says. And then he's like, and mother, you've really failed him because you never taught him about God. And he's like, as blunt as he possibly can be, but he's also kind of strangely, like, kind to them. And he's like, you'll be okay. Just, you know, just change. Mm -hmm. You'll be all right. I'll come back and visit again. We're fine. (laughs) You know? Um, But I, he doesn't hedge it. Yeah. So, so we'll move to the Enduring Chill since that's a perfect segue. The Enduring Chill, like I said, was, was published in 1958. And so, you know, Flannery is still, she's still kind of writing stories to get published and to get more, I mean, you know, she got paid a little something for them. So it's like, that was her way of making money, but it's also her way to kind of keep herself afloat in between novels. So she had not published um, The Violent Barrier Away. That was published in 1960. And so she, you know, writes these stories that ultimately get um, collected in in this collection. And uh, like the article that I mentioned, which I (laughs) conveniently put on the ground, about uh, basically everything that rises must converge as a short story cycle uh, is really, yeah, O'Connor's seven-story cycle. Um, The only stories that are not included in the cycle are Parker's Back and Judgment Day. Um, We're going to talk about Judgment Day next time, and then Parker's Back is going to be actually the second-to-last one we talk about. Um, But um, just this concept of she saw an inner relation between her stories very similar to the first collection. Um, a good man is hard to find is clearly all of these stories are set in more or less the same place, like the state of Georgia. I don't think any of those stories are set in New York, whereas some of the stories here are either set in New York or have characters that are coming back from New York like we're going about, about to talk about with the Enduring Chill. And so uh, she clearly had a vision for how these would relate, and it's it's been interesting reading this article. I'm actually going to talk about it on the final episode when we kind of discuss the, the work as a whole. Um, but it's just it, it's just really interesting to think about. She's writing each story to be a self-contained story, and yet they have a lot of like just like Whitney was talking about the heat uh, representing God in Greenleaf versus the chill representing God in the Enduring Chill. There are these great, um, just she just wove together all these amazing details into these stories, such that they can stand alone. But when you read them together as a collection, like we're doing for this podcast, you really get the bigger vision that she's trying to convey, which is her own deep faith in Christ and her own, um, you know, uh, the, the the pressing need that she has to see people you know, see, see the truth, hear the truth. Um, and, and so the, the Enduring Chill is a great example of that one. Like, this is the only story that God is, like, explicitly a character in. I mean, the Holy Spirit is mentioned by name in the story, and so we'll talk about that in a second. But um, this character, Asbury Fox, which, by the way, love foxes, and so the fox-colored eyes for Mr. Greenleaf, like, that just made me smile. Um it does make me think, though, you know, foxes are supposed to be kind of, you know, a little bit roguish. Crafty, a little yeah. crafty. Um, crazy like a fox. Oh, and he's described as sly. Yeah. You know that time where he's, like, 
uh, call me a priest. Like, he gets this sly look on his face. Yeah. Um, like, he thinks he's going to outfox God. Yes. And then it doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Um, but that that being said, foxes are wonderful. I got to see one a couple, uh, it's probably like over a month ago now, but I uh, saw one on Wheeler Road in Augusta, Georgia as I was driving, and I just squealed with joy. Um, but just this story, even more than the comforts of home, made me squeal with joy. It was so funny. I couldn't get over how funny it was. It's actually the second funniest story to me, to me in my humble opinion. Uh, the funniest one is The Lame Shelter First, which we'll talk about by itself because it's a longer story. Um, yeah, um, we'll probably go over two hours just on that one. Um, but just the way this story begins, Asbury's train stopped so that he would get off exactly where his mother was standing waiting to meet him. So there's this kind of like, the train sinks up perfectly. He can't, he can't avoid it. He's got to get off the train. Her thin, spectacled face below him was bright with a wide smile that disappeared as she caught sight of him bracing himself behind the conductor. The smile vanished so suddenly, the shocked look that replaced it was so complete that he realized for the first time that he must look as ill as he was. And so you have this opening image of this young man waiting to get off the train he's kind of like oh gosh it stopped right where mom is and then she sees him and she's like oh my gosh he's going to die and that moment for her of being like not being cheerful and positive seems like it's a big deal for her it's like revealing because normally she's like home again home again jiggity jig I knew you like that. Of course. It, or don't you think Timber Burr's improved? You think like she just has these little things she says. She's so so positive all the time. The um, it, just to protect the innocent. Uh, the mom in this reminds me of Janice. The mom is it Janice or Janet? The mom on Rectify, Janet. Janet, I Jeanette. believe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Amantha is kind of like Mary George. Oh yeah. Um, and so, but Asbury is not like Daniel. I mean, he, Daniel on Rectify is very, very intellectual. He's been reading Somerset Moffman and Takes death himself penalty, pretty seriously. So, yes. But. But he's not the same. But he's not, he's not the same character. But, no. but it's interesting that, um. There's just this sense of, like, you're coming back from New York, and it's like, let, let me show you the two new stores in the downtown strip of Tombsboro. Is it Tombsboro, or is it? It's uh, Timberboro. Timberboro. Yeah. Um, and so just the pride of and this. And the woods and the tree line are important in the story, too. Yes. So Timberboro as a name is kind of yes. interesting. So there's that opening description of Asbury, and it says the sky was a chill gray and a startling white gold sun like some strange potentate from the east was rising beyond the black woods that surrounded Timberboro. It cast a strange light over the single block of one-story brick and wooden shacks. Asbury felt that he was about to witness a majestic transformation, that the flat of roofs might at any moment turn into the mounting turrets of some exotic temple for a god he didn't know. Which is interesting because the temple for the unknown god is where Paul preaches in, in Athens. Yeah. Um, and that's how he attracts people, uh, you know, uh, uh, Greek people mm-hmm. who are very religious uh, uh, of their, like, 
gods and goddesses, he he uses that, that, that there is a temple basically like, well, we made one more just in case there's a God we didn't know about. And sure enough, there is mm-hmm. the God that they don't know about. And so there's that element of he's coming back to Timberboro as if he's coming to heaven almost, right? Yeah, and then l- or the later on, land, on the page he sort of says, oh, I can't believe, I cannot believe I thought of Timberboro as being mm-hmm. some exotic, like, you know, heavenly place. Ugh, ridiculous. Um because he hates Timberbury. The thought that he has to die in Timberboro instead of New York City is disgusting to him. Yes. Um, but yeah, that <laughs> description of the the startling sun, right? Like this idea that like the spiritual reality he's going to encounter is going to startle him. And that it's going to come from some strange potentate in the East, which of mm-hmm. course is going to make you think of, you know, the Pope or like the Catholic Church, maybe even the Eastern Orthodox Church, because yes. you bring up Greece and yes. Athens and a strange potentate in the East. And so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very powerful early on. Like to me, this story has a lot more spiritual element immediately yeah. than, than Greenleaf. A little, a little more explicit. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's part of why I say Greenleaf could have been her way to kind of like let her literary ambition be gored to death and like, like put her spiritual ambition into her literary pursuits from then on. That's interesting. And so, and, and I'm going to, I mentioned that in part because when we talk about a couple of the other stories that we're saving for the end, I really think she's, you know, we talked about this in the, on the Alpha episode. She knows she's going to die of lupus. But when she really knows she's going to die, then I think she gets the most intensely spiritual. And that's why I think this is such a powerful collection to read is when you look at someone's final work, a lot of times it reveals like what their truest intentions are because they, they let down all the facade and they let down all the like, will this make me money or not? And, and, you know, all those questions. And so it's kind of like, if you know, if you know, this is going to be your last song that your voice can sing, what is your, what is your final breath going to be? And this is about a character who is pretty sure he's going to die. I mean, he's he's wrong, but he thinks that he's going to die. So I think, I think that his certainty is going that he's going to die is what opens him up to spiritual reality. Like he is genuinely rest starting to wrestle, even though True. his sickness seems like a vanity project at first or something, but then he starts realizing like I'm really sick and he really starts to wrestle with, okay, well what does it mean that I'm that I'm going to die? And he's trying to ask his friends like his friend gets and his friends are kind of like intellectual posers and not helpful at all. Exactly. And they say things like yeah, salvation is just like getting rid of your illusions and realizing that there is no salvation. That's the only salvation you're going to get. That's bleak if that's what you're telling to a person who's genuinely like, I'm facing death. Right. So that's, I think that's why Asbury is drawn to this priest that he, he first encounters a priest when he goes to this um, event with Getz and basically Getz and the people at the event seem to think that calm indifference is the answer to all your problems just not just detaching yourself not caring anymore just like realizing that all your hopes are an illusion 
Um, and he is drawn to the priest instead, the priest mm-hmm. who is skeptical of all of that, and he wants another priest. Well, he's never going to be reaching out to a priest if he didn't think he was going to die. Exactly. And so he he's mirroring what may be happening with the author. And people that know they're going to die, the last people they should ever talk to is 25-year-olds. 20, <laughs> who think but, they're never going to die. Yeah, who think they're ne- really not only they think that they're never going to die, but they have this certainty of whatever their opinion is could never waver. Like, we talked about this with teenagers earlier this morning. We are talking about, like, how teenagers are... We love them. We contend with them. We teach them. Um, but teenagers are just so certain and, and almost impossible to teach sometimes. And that just comes with... I just think that that's just part of growing up. Ironically, maturing often looks like realizing you don't know as much as you think you know. I mean, yes. I think that's been the case for me. And I'm still maturing. I'm still yeah. every day, like, grappling with that. Well, and, and, you know, I was thinking about bananas. <laughs> bananas, when they are not quite ripe, are actually harder than, than when they're really ready to eat. And, like... Monkeys eat bananas when they're all the way brown on the outside. Like disintegrated. Yeah, and so this idea of like, what is the most mature person? Hopefully it's going to be someone who's very shapeable. Mm -hmm. Now that could be shapeable for evil or for good. But, you know, a a 25-year-old typically is not going to be the most shapeable person unless he thinks he's gonna die yes and then it sort of like transforms you and 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 obviously like this is not to you know denigrate the faith of 25 year olds like I, I believe that like my faith was strong when I was 25 my point is like if you think at 25 you'll never be deeper you know deeper more deeply dependent on God or deeper in love with Christ or more 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 deeper more deeply convicted that the truth governs you you haven't hit all of the low points you will hit in your life. And so, yeah, you know, this idea that Asbury is leaning on people like Getz, who's just kind of flippant. Yes. It's like he's actually, in some ways, he, he's, he's making himself more susceptible to the truth of Father Finn because he interacts with someone like Getz. Yeah, who... It says that Getz went from being angry all the time. He was the kind of person who was always indignant and angry about something. Then he went off on, like, a spiritual retreat and learned about, you know, kind of yes, the, the, yes. the Buddhist faith. And he realized what he should be is just, like, calm and indifferent and, yes. and detached so that he's not angry all the time. Like, the, yeah. basically going to a different extreme, right? I go from being angry and indignant all the time. And indig- indignant means that things are not right. Like... Things don't True. have their dignity that, that, that they should have. Life doesn't have the dignity you wish it had, so you're indignant. Yeah. And he says, well, the answer is to go to the other stream and just stop caring. And yeah. that's not the Christian's answer, right, to the, the indignities of the world, to stop caring. I love that when Asbury's meeting with the priest um, in his home, that the priest is sort of deaf and so Asbury has to yell at him and I just was thinking about how hard it is to be like jaded and condescending and kind of like wry and flippant when you have to yell like that tone just doesn't work if you have to yell it's like when you're yelling at somebody because they can't hear you 
you ha- you just automatically have to be more like to the point and earnest. I just mm-hmm. love that the, the priest not being able to hear does that for him because he's trying to be like he says, the myth of the dying God has always fascinated me. And then he's like, the myth of the dying God has always <laughs> fascinated me. Like it sounds ridiculous to be so like detached and cool about things when you're having to scream them. And it just shuts him down. It shuts his pose of being detached and cool and intellectual only. It just shuts it down in a beautiful way. And bless his heart, Asbury, he's just... He he might be the most pathetic character in all of the stories. I mean, every character has a story that I think deserves our pathos, you know? Um... And one of the things to remember about Asbury is his dad died when he was five. And so it says he died 20 years ago. And so some of these other characters, it's clear that they have lived alone with their moms. But this is like he probably doesn't have any memories of his dad. And so yeah, it says that he doesn't remember his dad, but he doesn't think he would have liked him. He says, I read, he read right. some of his that's correspondence right. and he like hasn't has an image in his mind of what his father would have been like, which would, he's like a, um, one of those people who like hangs out at the courthouse and is like petty corruption. Well, and it sounded almost like his dad was as successful as the Greenleaf boys. And he was one of these, like he was good at anything he tried and he only had like eight grade. Or like the comforts at home father kind of too, like a maneuverer, you know, a mover and shaker in his Like he's kind of this, he's kind of this uh, combination of the comforts at home, Thomas's father Mm -hmm. and the Greenleaf boys. Um, and so there's yeah. this, I don't know, to me, you know, as, as you keep thinking about these different stories, there really is a lot of overlap. Um, and the enduring chill to me, when I read it the first time, I mean, I, I just, it's amazing how many times I put LOL. <laughs> I mean, the description of his face, the thin reddish wedge of, of hair left on top, bore down in a point that seemed to lengthen his no- nose and give him an irritable expression that matched his tone of voice. He, he just, it's, he sounds like a cartoon character. I mean, yeah. he just sounds like a, like, Yosemite Sam or something. Or what about how, when Dr. Block comes over and he's, like, treating Asbury like a little kid and doing these antics, to, like, he's like he's Patch Adams or something. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. Like, I love the part. <laughs> I love the part toward the end where it says that he removed a red bandana handkerchief that he carried to be funny with and wiped his face thoroughly, having a different expression on it every time he appeared from behind the rag. That's just like what we would do with our seven month old daughter. And he's doing yes. it to Asbury. It's so yes. funny. And, and I love when it talks about, you know, Dr. Block coming. And it says something, let me find it, because it's, it's not very far into the story. Um, oh, gosh, now i got to find it. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, good gosh, it's far in, it's farther into the story than I thought it was. Um, yeah, here we go. Block was irresistible to children, for miles around, they vomited and went into fevers <laughs> to have a visit from him. <laughs> Which is interesting to me because the lame shall enter first, as we'll talk about on the episode after next. Um, the, one of the characters says something like, 
the people that get afflictions are lucky because they get to they get to die first and get to have the chance to see God first. And so this idea of like children wanting to be sick so that they can see Dr. Block. And Dr. Block is depicted in this way that I really liked, which he he's kind of pen- got penetrating eyes, so mm-hmm. he's got some kind of like wisdom to him, but he he's very like humble and unassuming. Mm-hmm. Like he says, most things are beyond me. Yes. Asbury says, what's wrong with me is way beyond you. And he says, most things are beyond me. I ain't found anything yet that I thoroughly understood. Almost like Mr. Greenleaf saying, well, I thank God for everything. Yeah. But you it's know. like, that is actually the right attitude to have in both cases. Right. But right. Flannery O'Connor is, is good about, I say good about, to me it seems good, good about, putting penetrating truths and wisdoms and characters who aren't particularly likable. Right. Because just because you, just because you're a follower of God even doesn't mean that you're like getting everything right. And you're some sort of ideal paragon of a person. I think Mm -hmm. that's actually what the world demands. And they say, if you aren't sort of like above reproach and winning and appealing and dignified all the time, then you don't have any right claiming to be a Christian, it's like all the claiming to be a Christian really means is that you're claiming to be forgiven by God. I mean, yeah. that's kind of like essentially what you're claiming. And so yeah. I, I like it that there are these characters who, yeah, you might not even like them if you met them, but they are getting something right in a fundamental it way. Says, Mrs. Fox was standing behind him, smiling radiantly. Here's Dr. Block, she said, as if she had captured this angel on the rooftop and <laughs> brought him down, brought him in for her little boy. And, and just... Her faith in Dr. Block is is really sweet because it really, to me, it mirrors a childlike faith in Christ. The, you know, this idea of, like, Jesus loves me. You know, that, that song is the first song I ever sang to Josephine. And, you know, it, it's such a familiar song because it's such an easy song to remember. But it's like, if, if you listen to the lyrics of that little short, you know, verse and chorus... That's that's all you need to know on earth is is Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so mm-hmm. little ones to him belong they are weak but he is strong. If you if you believe every line of that verse and then yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me the Bible tells me so. Like if you believe that and live by that then all of life will have elements of childhood like when you face joy, you will have a childlike joy. When you face uh, trials, you'll have a childlike faith in God walking you through those trials. But the problem is Asbury is so self-sure. He's just so certain that who he is is codified in eternity. And he's, he's like aping William Butler Yeats, this like gathered up into the artifice of eternity. And it's just, he, he's kind of, he's like the English major I really hope no one thought I was. <laughs> he's like such a, he's so just prideful about his own ability. He's made art his idol. He has. Where, yeah. You know, he says it directly. He says that he lived for art. Art's going to kill him off to kind of like 
spare him from the indignity of never having actually made any good yes. art because he's like I served art well and so art is going to let me go ahead and die because I can't actually make any art but I'm a faithful Ooh. servant of art so he's, there's a weird yes. he has shame about the fact that his idol he actually hasn't been able to like live up to the ideals of his idol yeah but it's like th- there are three people in this household who are so kind of prideful and stubborn in their own distinctive yeah. ways. I think that's a very common dynamic in yes. O'Connor's stories. Because I, I say that because, obviously, Mary George is proud and stubborn. Yes. That's made explicit. Like, it says there's nothing she was not an expert on. <laughs> and then the mother... She's kind of the... If, if Joy Holga had... A, yeah. Like, she's the Joy Holga in this story, but yeah. it's not about her. Like, she's, like, the side character in this one. Right. And then you've got... The mother, who I don't think is as obviously proud, and she seems way more in some ways like down to earth, but there are moments where she's really sure of herself and kind of like stubborn, and the one of which is you can tell she's kind of made an idol of her own abilities and of her children because mm-hmm. when he's trying to convince her that he's going to die, she says to Asbury, do you think for one minute that I intend to sit here and let you die? And it says... Her eyes were as hard as two old mountain ranges seen in the distance. And it says he felt the first distinct stroke of doubt. Like, she's so certain that he's like, maybe she's not going to let me die. (laughs) Like, I don't know. it says she's going to, like, fill him up with blood and, like, keep him in a coma for years. I mean, it's just, I don't know. But it's funny that you mentioned, oh, i got to do this, Uh, whatever this thing is. Um. You mentioned the the passage where it says he had failed his God, art, but he had been a faithful servant and art was sending him death. He had seen this from the first with a kind of mystical clarity. And right before that, Mary George had said, mark my words, all he's going to be around here for the next 50 years is a decoration. Mm. And that's like the worst word you could use for an artist is like, oh, I use your thing as a decoration. It's like, but it's art. It's not a book to Put in an aesthetic way. You're supposed to read it. <laughs> Are you making fun of how I hate it when people buy books because they're the right color for their their decor? Well, yes, <laughs> yes. But I'm saying, like, as someone who tries to write his own stories, yeah. Like, if you want to use my book as a decorative piece in your house, like, please burn it. <laughs> like, please just. In spite of the fact that you really like. Like design, I do. Co- book I covers love, and things like that. I love aesthetic things. You want your book to be beautiful, but it's like I'd rather you have a beautiful experience reading my book, or a short story, or a poem, or whatever, or a song that I write, mm. than think it's beautiful looking, but don't let it interact with you at all. If that makes sense, because you do have a certain, and I do too, a certain idealism about art. It's part of why we were drawn together, probably, is we, mm-hmm. we share that. And he does, too. Asbury does, too. And I almost think anyone taking anything seriously can have a certain beauty to it. But then when you start realizing how taking this thing so seriously is failing him, then it starts to become a, a little bit of a tragedy instead of a farce. But the fact that he loves art so deeply and so truly but makes it a little bit more like a tragedy than a farce to me. Because, like, it says right. that he knew that um, 
he said this dream vision type thing, and he says he knew this was art come to wake him, and he sat up and opened his eyes. Um, he's, he's thinking about dying and having a funeral and then being resurrected by art, capital A, art. Like, he's genuinely idolizing art. He's not cynical at all yeah. underneath his, like, exterior kind of pose of cynicism. Like, don't you love the way when the Jesuit priest is going to come over, he makes his mom take the picture out of his room of a maiden chained to a rock? Because he's like, I think the Jesuit would would make fun of me a little bit for this. And yes. it's just, like, too earnest, something about it. It's too dramatic and, like, earnest. And he also has this comfortable little rocking chair taken out of the room because he's like, this priest is going to think it's dumb to have a comfortable rocking chair. Just get, like, a, a severe straight-back chair to put in the room instead. So pretending to be something he's not to get the yeah. approval of this priest. I have a friend, yet again, will not name for to, to protect the innocent, who's, like, the inverse of this person. Who's, like, just the kind of person... Now, now this person's a sincere Christian. He's actually a minister. And, and he, he is just... He he is so he he's just like the kind of person that would never think to take out his comfortable rocking chair from. Any, he doesn't any. put on a pose for anybody. Exactly, it's like he's the real the real person to all people, and and I I love him like he's just such. I mean, it's just anytime I think of him, it I just have a good feeling. Like I I'm so grateful that I get to be his brother in Christ. But it is, like, endearing in a, like, aww. Well, it's rare that someone who's not a child just doesn't worry about the effect he's going to have on other people. Yes. Like, the um, yes. the way other people are going to perceive him. Like, most of yeah. us, I, I know I do it. I get dressed, and I think, like, the different people I'm going to see across the course of the day are going to think this or that about how yeah. I'm dressed. I mean, I have to think about that a little bit. Adam and yeah. I both dress kind of eccentrically, so... Sometimes I, mean, I have to think about if I'm crossing the line into too eccentric true. or not. But and, 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 you know, all that to say, like, I, I try to be that. Like, I hope that I'm the kind of person that people are like, oh, my gosh, Adam Deal, bless his heart. He has a watch that matches his phone case. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> I actually do think that people do have that reaction to you sometimes where they're like, well, Adam, he's just, he's just himself, isn't he? <laughs> well, and that's, you know... That's what I think, that's what true freedom in Christ gives you. It allows you to just have a voice crack, you know, and just not be like, oh my gosh, I better talk in the deepest voice I possibly can. Because uh, cause that's know. what being a teenager is, right? You have yes. to put on this like hardness where, and then it breaks down because your voice inevitably cracks yeah. or something else. Like I have talked to teenagers who were mortified to the point of not wanting to come back to school because they fell down. <laughs> Like, you just trip and you fall down. Yeah. It is embarrassing to trip yep. and fall down. But it is. It when is. you're a, a certain age, it's like everything's amplified because yes. you just feel as if I'm not really sure who I am and who I want to be. And someone could make me feel like I am just nothing Yeah, if I make a mistake. And, of course, as, like, 38-year-old adults, we think, gosh, it's much more embarrassing to get that embarrassed about something yeah. than to, like be afraid that someone might judge you for falling down. Because it's you like, know? well, you all have fallen down too. Yeah. Like, right, everyone's fallen down before. That's not... I, I talk to my students sometimes about this concept of 
being ashamed of sin, not being ashamed of things that aren't sin. So, like, falling down is not a sin. It's just, yeah. like, a, yeah. an unfortunate thing that happens occasionally. Um, same with there, the whole categories of things that people get deeply ashamed about that aren't wrong, but then yeah. they kind of don't know how to be deeply ashamed of actual sin. Right, yeah. you might treat someone really cruelly and not even get ashamed of it, but then you get really ashamed because you were walking around with something stuck in your teeth after yeah. lunch, yeah. right? And you just want to crawl in a hole and die. So yeah. we, we get that mixed up. And, you know, it's interesting that, like, the characters in this story, like, Mary George seems like the type to, like, make Asbury feel insecure as as much as she can, right? And... She never makes him feel insecure because he's like not on on solid spiritual ground. Except that one time when she was thirteen. Well, that but see that's when <laughs> yeah. that's when their dad died. Yeah. And so this yeah. idea of like she's acting out probably either before he died or right after mm-hmm. he died by trying to trick Asbury into like like walking to the front and like. You know, yeah. professing Christ as a five-year-old, which which he wouldn't even understand yeah, what he's doing. Really. I do believe yeah. it's possible for a five-year-old to have, you know, a childlike faith in Christ. But how poor in spirit can you be as a five-year-old? And she versus, spiritually you know, bullies him. Like, yeah. I would say, like he runs away because he's scared. Yeah, and she's like, what did she say? Like he's a little stinker. Yeah. Like you know, he 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 really needs God because he's a little stinker and. Um, you know, something like that just kind of insults him. And mm-hmm. I think it kind of parallels to the way the priest treats him when he says, like, you are a very ignorant boy. But yeah. there well, seems to be yeah. this compassion to me in the priest where he's like, he says he's a good boy at heart. He's just ignorant. Like, he literally just doesn't know anything right. about, like, the spiritual reality. He doesn't even know that God made him. Um, Mary Grace is like like that clanging symbol we've talked about yeah. before with her stories where she's battering him over the head with something that may be, actually be true, but she's being so mean that you can't even, like, absorb it, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think that the other priest, the, the, the priest is a clanging symbol. I think he's got a lot more kindness in him. Yeah. He just want, genuinely is like, you need to know this, you know? <laughs> and we, we'll talk about the priest in just a second. Um, the, just... The feel of this story, like one of the early things that I wrote down, I think it's on the first page, was, is this a tragedy or a comedy? Yeah, oh, is, is it setting up comedy or tragedy? It says he had been, become entirely accustomed to the thought of death, but he had not become accustomed to the thought of death here. So he knows he's going to die, but now he's got to adjust to dying in Timberboro, Georgia. Like a loser. Like, you know, yeah. and, and and poor Flannery O'Connor, like, really did have to leave, you know, this artistic, you know, living with the Fitzgeralds right. and, and, like, having this kind of purely, purely aesthetic-driven life to have to attend to her health and, and have to rely on family members that, she was excited to get away from after yeah. living with, you know, for 20 years. And so, you know, to me, this story is much more indicative. Like when it says that uh, Asbury looks like he was about to die when he, when her, his mom sees him on the train, 
that's what Flannery O'Connor's uncle thought when he yeah. saw her the first time. And Mary Grace says he looks about 100 years old, which is an exact echo of yes. what the, the family members said about her when she got off the train. And I just, you know, I, I do have a lot of sadness about Flannery O'Connor having to endure this, like, very awful sickness. Obviously, lupus is still a thing, although the medication is better and people live to be longer, but or live longer than they did then. But that her dad died of it, and then she gets it. And it's like she could have just been immersed in self-pity the way that, that, that Asbury is in this story, and everyone would have understood it because they would have said, you're right, it's not fair. You're right, it's, it, you know, someone with that much talent shouldn't have to face an early death, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and really... I think she writes this story in part to kind of say, like, don't, don't, don't lionize me as someone who is just like, you know, I'm so glad to be sick so I can glorify God more. It's like, it was hard for her, and it would be very hard for anyone to have to, you know, look death in the eye at 25, and, you know, we, we know people that have died in that age range, and, and it, it's just... It's very sad, and at the same time, it's like for those that that were Christians, well, they you know they've been in heaven for ten years, fifteen years that I've had to you know deal with this stuff. You know, <laughs> it's like I I love people and I love being alive most of the time, but nothing can compare to being in heaven. And and Asbury thinks he wants to go to art heaven which is like for his art to be eternal. And so he's got this play that he wants to write mm-hmm. about, you know, in the, in the language of the of the book, the negroes, like he, or the negro. I think it's like he, he just like yeah. I want to like write like it's an abstract concept. Yes, yeah. I want to write the play that that captures what it is like to be black in America. As if that would be appropriate white, mouth white, for that. White twenty-one-year-old is who is literally be, can't carry on a conversation with an actual like black person in the story. And and we'll talk about that as well as like the race relations of this because it really does overlap. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, everything that rises must converge. But a he lot. knows that's important, right? Like that topic has gravitized. Yes. And people, I I would guess that people in New York might tell a southerner in this time period. Well, wow, you've really got a unique perspective on race because you're from the South, man. Yes. You know, yes. and he's like, oh, okay, I guess I do. And it says that he didn't want to die without having kind of created something meaningful for himself, like made one last mm-hmm. meaningful experience for himself. And like at first, he's thinking, well, the meaningful thing I'll leave is like a great piece of art about an important question. Yeah. Right. But then when he starts hitting a wall with that, because he's like kind of like Julian, he's like, I, I don't actually know any black people well, and mm-hmm. they don't seem to want to know me. And ha- so I don't know if I can actually write this play. Um, <laughs> it's one of the saddest, most pitiful parts of the story to me is when he has the two workers um, called into his room for like a last meeting before he dies because <laughs> he thinks it's going to be like just m- the meaningful thing he does is like reach out to some some black people before he dies and then it just goes disastrously and he's like uh get somebody get him out of my room uh mom are you gonna are you gonna come get him out of my room this is not going well this is not going well 
because he tries to he tries to smoke with them one last time, and he pulls out the the cigarette packet mm-hmm. and hands it to Randall, and mm-hmm. Randall just takes it. It's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's it's a cartoon. I mean, it's it, it's cartoon humor. It's like it's just. Oh, it's so hilarious. Like, And it's like they keep rejecting him in a way that... It's like he... Th- I think he thought they'll be so happy that I want to talk to them. Yes. Like, every time he was interacting with them, he's like, if they can just get comfortable and realize I'm on their side, they will mm-hmm. be so excited to yeah, be they'll tell me, me. They'll tell me everything yeah. that they think about when they're not around white people. And there's two yeah. times when Randall... Yeah. So, Randall is the one who's described as being part Indian. No, Randall's the right? older one. He's the, like, dark black one. The other... Uh, uh, Morgan is the is the younger one that's part Indian. Okay, hold on. Let me turn to that page where that's discussed. Because I was thinking about, I think, and you you know, feel free to correct me. Mm-hmm. It's, it says Morgan was light brown, part Indian. The other one, Randall, was very black and fat. Okay, so it's Randall who keeps rejecting him more explicitly. Yes, he's there, the older one. Yeah, there are yeah. a couple of times like. <laughs> Randall says um, he don't take what you take, meaning med- for medicine when you're right, sick. Right. Trying to say like, hey, Rent Morgan, you two aren't going to be friends. You're not connected. Drop it. Yeah. And then there's yeah. another time where the same basic thing happens where Asbury's trying to get them to drink this milk with him that ends up actually making him sick. And they're just refusing to drink the milk. And at first it seems like they were just refusing because it's like against the rules but then of course the wisdom of refusing to drink the milk becomes abundantly clear yes. but they're kind of criticizing Asbury and saying like how come he talks so ugly about his ma like they're like he's yeah. not a respect to like like we can't respect this guy what's his problem um she ain't whoop him enough when he was little is what Randall says but there's another moment where um he says, how come, Morgan says, how come you let him drink that milk every day? And Randall says, what he do is him, what I do is me. That reminded me of what he says about um, the medicine. We don't take the same things you take. Mm-hmm. It's like, we are disconnected from this man, and we're going to say that way, don't connect with him. It's interesting that you bring that up, because I was thinking about Julian's mother and everything that rises must converge, and how her her attempt at racial reconcil- reconciliation, if you want to, even want to call it that, because she obviously has racist tones and is not purely race blind or pu- purely an equalist, equalist, what, <laughs> non-racist, an anti-racist. Um, her answer is to reach out to the to the children and to to try to dignify the children of other races. And I actually think that's a better answer than than some of the other options that Flannery uh, depicts in, in this story and in everything that rises must converge. Because, like you were saying, Randall has this, like, it's not wise to try and, like, put yourself on the same level as a white person because he will eventually, you know, you know, pull his, like, I'm a white person card and, and, and deny you. And he's trying to use them yeah. to make a name for himself and yeah. write a play. He's yeah. the same way that Julian wants to use all these black people he tries to befriend so he can feel like he's progressive. Yeah. He he wants to date a black woman mm-hmm. so that he can take her home to his mother and give yeah. his mother a stroke, basically. Yeah, it's like, like it could be any black woman. It's just woman. a manipulator. It just would be someone, someone 
black enough to make his mother have a stroke. Yeah. And which is, you know, objectifying another person and in, in this case mm-hmm. of another race and and obviously in another gender. And so the the solution that Julian's mother has, I actually think has some wisdom to it. I don't think her overall attitude toward race is right, but I think the attitude of if you dignify the children of another race, they will grow up believing that people of other races see their dignity. Speaking of dignity, though, I thought that, in a strange way, Mrs. Fox dignified her workers more than Asbury did. Yes. Because she says, I'm going to have to find it for a second, but something to the effect of, like, they're smarter than you think they are. Yes, um, yes. She she knows, I think she... Those two are not stupid, yes. she says. Um she she's saying they have faults, but she's saying mm-hmm. they're they're not stupid. They know how to look out for themselves. You're treating them like they're like innocent little babies who don't yes. know how to look out for themselves. Yes. So that's just kind of to an extent that's showing them more respect, I'd right. say. And 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 you know, I don't think it's easy to see someone's dignity in in, in its entirety. I think that that's part of why racism is such a hard thing in America is like, we just have so many different people in this, in this country. And it's hard to even see the the dignity of the person you're married to, you know? And so it's, it's just, it's a constant battle Mm -hmm. to remember that God is God, that you are not God, you are a creation of God. And so is that other person. And that Jesus got on the cross for the sins of that person and your sins and that if they put their faith in him and you do too that you're actually brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ and and and, and that is the power of Christianity on earth is is it can bring together a true communion of people and not a cheap communion which is what Asbury does so Asbury a year earlier from when the story is taking place he decides he's going to smoke with these, you know, with Mar- uh, with Morgan and Randall. And he finally gets them to smoke. It says he had taken, like, three puffs of smoke already. And so they kind of, like, make sure he's going to do it, and then they do it. But when he's like, I'm going to drink the milk. And then they're like, it's not allowed. Well, they know, like Whitney said... They know why it's not allowed. Now, Whitney, tell us, why on earth would they not drink the milk with Asbury? Is it because they don't want to share a glass with him? <laughs> That's his <laughs> assumption, which is, you know, he feels very, like, brave and groundbreaking for sharing a glass with them. But, yeah, unpasteurized milk makes you sick. Just, like, smoking in the barn contaminates the milk and makes it taste like tobacco. Like there are these practical reasons. There's not, they're not racist reasons as it turns out. They're just practical reasons why there are these rules in place. He's like assuming worse about his mother than actually is the case. Um, and forcing himself to drink milk, which he even, he doesn't even like milk. He's just doing it on principle to make a point. But you know, okay. We talked about the tree line and, Flannery O'Connor stories being seeming to indicate like I have control this is my property this is my ground this is like just earthly things I don't kind of blocking out the spiritual there is a moment in the story that I'm having trouble finding where the tree line is described as being the color of the black workers 
overalls. Uh, you're talking about that's he's talking about the eyes. He's talking about the his eyes were the were the col the the faded color of the black workers overalls. Yes, it has something to do with the tree line yes, though. That's why I can't is, find it. It's right toward the end. Um, and oh, is, I found it. Okay. Um, the light in the room was beginning to have an odd quality, almost as if it were taking on presence. So that feels like it's getting into like spiritual, um, qualities of light in in a darkened form. It entered and seemed to wait outside. It appeared to move no farther than the edge of the faded tree line, which he could see a few inches over the sill of his window. Suddenly he thought of that experience of communion that he had had in the dairy with the Negroes when they smoked together and at once he began to tremble with excitement. They would smoke together one last time. Oh, this is a different time. Okay, but this time he does look at the tree line and then think of that, like, moment. Yes. I th- see, I bring this up because I think that the tree line oftentimes, like, kind of hit, gets at the idols of the particular mm-hmm. character. And um, I think he's made an idol of being kind of progressive and liberal-minded and different from his mother, mm-hmm. you know, um, and these meeting with these two men kind of like encapsulate that for him. Yeah. And he wants to have a transformative moment of like aesthetic beauty that shows how like liberal minded he is. And being liberal minded is an idol for a character like him or Julian. Yes. Yes. And I think that that, like I said, cheap communion, he thinks that smoking a cigarette with a black person makes him one of them or makes him feel like, okay, Mm -hmm. there's no distinction between us now. There's, they would never want to hold anything back from me now. It's like how Julian is like, can I have your matches? And, uh, can I have a cigarette? And he's just being annoying. Essentially that guy's not like grateful to be like imposed upon for all this stuff. It's interesting that like, I I don't know if Flannery O'Connor smoked. I don't think she did much, maybe at all. Um, but just thinking about like smoking in both of these stories is the way for a white person to try and interact with a black person. Smoking is all about like reducing your anxiety. Yeah. And there would be nothing more anx- anxiety driving in in 1950s Georgia yeah. than like interacting with someone of another race because that's just how high the tension was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've heard like I wasn't there, <laughs> but. I just think that's something to remember about the fact that they smoke is like it it's meant to be an act of calming and kind of relaxing yeah. and, and kind of like letting the pressure of the moment slip away for a while. It's like the pressure of the moment will be there when we come back, but we're going to have this like smoke break. And I'm sure these men just, I mean, because they, they keep saying the same thing when they're in the room with him when he's on his deathbed. Yeah, you should sure look like, good. You should sure look good. Like, I, I never seen somebody look so, like, they can't, They kind of can't have it. They don't know what else to say. And they're probably, like, I don't want to deal with the fact that you, if you're going to die, like, right, I, why right. are you bringing us into this? This is so uncomfortable. Why and are I, you, like, yeah. using us to feel better when you barely know us? And They might have never been on the second floor of the house. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, the whole thing is forcing them into an incredibly yes. uncomfortable situation they probably just yeah. want to diffuse and get out of as soon as possible. Like, yeah. the last page, it says, um, a blinding red-gold sun moves serenely un- from under a purple cloud. Below it, the tree line was black against the crimson sky. It formed a brittle wall, a frail defense set up in his mind. And so I think mm-hmm. calling the tree line black there, like, very... Yeah. St- specifically in this story makes a lot of sense because for some reason um these 
black, the only black man he really knows, has become a kind of brittle wall or a frail defense against feeling scared of dying or feeling like he's never done anything yes. important in his life. And he, he thinks that he's going to, through art, uh, reconcile race. Yeah. Instead of actually trying, like... Like, to reconcile with another human being right. of a different race. And, Genuinely, and, yeah. And I think that it's possible for him to do that but it's just, I, I don't know, it, it just, you know, yeah. in, in the confines of the story and, and the time, the context of the story, I think that racial reconciliation, it's almost like the 50s was the first time where really the, the black Americans were like, we're actually going to demand that you treat us with dignity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 2021... We're still on, like, the fifth or sixth wave of the civil rights movement. But I think, personally, from my, you know, white privilege point of view, I think there's been a lot of progress for black people in America as individuals. I don't know how much progress there's been for the black American experience as a unified whole because I just don't know if America is going to be a nation that allows a whole race to rise as one. I just don't, I don't, I don't think America's built that way. It's been like really fits and it's, starts, which yeah. is frustrating. I think for some people, they saw us have a black president and then mm-hmm. said, well, if we could achieve that as a country, then why aren't we achieving greater equality in all these other areas, right. like maybe areas involving law enforcement or, you know, so like, yeah. or like um, imprisonment yeah. or poverty, like educational attainment. Why is it, why does it feel like equality is so elusive yeah. when we've achieved this other huge mile, you know, kind of mile yeah. marker toward equality? Like I was thinking about in light of what you were just saying, mm-hmm. um, that Asbury gets frustrated when he's, hung out with Randall and Morgan for two days and he felt he had not established rapport (laughs) in two days. And I was thinking, well, maybe if he went and worked, like he genuinely like started working on the dairy farm. Like he just, like the way his mom wants him to. He just started Mm -hmm. working there every day. He just got up early and went to work and worked all day. Maybe eventually he would establish rapport with them. Right. But like, he's just a dilettante to an extreme. And... He doesn't want to put the work in to establish real rapport. And, you know, I hate to break it to everybody, but, like, posting a lot of things on Facebook doesn't cause racial reconciliation. Now, it might cause someone to read the post and think about it and apply it in their own lives, but, you know, that it's easy to post something on social media and think you've done something to reconcile something. But really, all you've done is just, re, you know, reshare something or, or, you know, tweet something or whatever whatever it is. And, and it's a lot harder to, to dignify a person when you interact with them in person than it is to feign their dignity on a, like, oh, my gosh, that's so awesome. Like, I could, I could you know come across any way online but if you interact with me in person you're going to be much more likely to see the real me and I think Asbury is seeing the real him when he actually interacts with these 
black workers and his mom and his sister and Dr. Block in a way that he never saw himself in New York because I think New York is just a, it's a very artificial place. Like it's a place that a lot of people don't have any roots. And, you know, Dr. Block even says like, I went there once and I came back. I was so grateful for what I have here. And, and I understand the reasons to leave home, like star Drake and, and the comforts of home. If, if she had even some of those things happen to her, then yeah, I'd rather be homeless than living in a she home. She had no comforts of home. Yes. Yeah. I'd rather be homeless than be in a home where I'm getting sexually abused or whatever. And I totally understand that. But Asbury, on the other hand, he has everything he needs in Timberboro, but he's been in New York trying to get what he thinks he needs, mm-hmm. which is uh, his dignity, basically. Because he says... You know how he writes that two-notebook long letter to his mom? <laughs> yes. And, then, <laughs> and the letter, it sounds like it just says, Mom, like, I have an artistic temperament, and you didn't encourage it at all, and now I can't be an artist, and it's all your fault. Why didn't you just kill off my artistic temperament while you were at it? Because now I'm just miserable. Like, his mom does seem like she judges him a little bit because she says, I've got my feet on the ground. His father had his feet on the ground. I don't know how his feet aren't on the ground. Maybe he should go to work and his feet would get on the ground. But she seems like she tries to be supportive as best she can figure out how to be. Yeah. She's like, why don't you write some? Like, she's trying to encourage his interests. It might be a little condescending, but, like, from the outside, we can say, wow, like, you're really blaming your mom for the fact that you haven't managed to do what you want to do. And that's, that's really immature. Yeah. Your mom's not doing anything to actively thwart you. You're just, you're being pretty immature, but he needs someone to blame. I mean, he has set up something as an idol in his life. He hasn't achieved what the idol is asking for. He needs something or someone to blame. Parents are a really easy target to blame when we feel like something's not going well in our adult life. Yes. And, and, you know, parents are on the hook from, you know, conception onward, really before conception onward, but especially from conception onward, they're, they're on the hook and parents of adult children have to learn how to be the parent of an adult child, uh, of an adult, not a child who's, you know, in Asbury's case, 25 years old, um, and I think some people adjust to it and some people don't. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's something that the, the adult child has to just have grace for. Like, what I'm learning as being a parent is like, oh, like, my mom and dad did all these same things for me. And to what extent did I appreciate them when I was a child? Not nearly enough. Now, granted, I don't think as a 5 or 10 or 15-year-old, you really are told again and again, oh, you remember that time when you pooped out your diaper and had to change it all the way up to your neckline? You know, like, you don't get a lot of that sometimes, especially if you don't grow up around babies, you know, after you've, after you've been a child. And so it's just interesting to think that Asbury, you know, he just, he writes two notebooks full of one letter, which would never fit inside an envelope. And it's just, it's laughable. It's, it's, it's emoting. It's, it's hilarious. It's surely and, and, and repeating yet, himself. Yeah, and, and yet he is being prolific. Like, he wrote a ton. He probably wrote, I don't know, I'm guessing that's like a 50-page notebook. So that's 100 pages 
toward a writing project. So he could have been a writer, but the problem is, like, would you rather be a famous writer for indicting your mother, or would you rather just not be famous as a writer, you know? But what fascinates me about that is that Flannery O'Connor, I think, did somehow manage to turn some of her personal frustrations into art. Like, I mean, I don't know that for sure, but my sense of it is that she's writing story after story about like a intellectual child stuck at home on a farm yep, yep. with a, with a mother specifically <laughs> Yep. because there are things that you might want to say to your mother that you don't let yourself say because you're trying to be a decent human, Yes. but you can have your character say them and clearly depict it as wrong, but kind of right. exorcise it from your system a little bit. Right. And, she managed to turn some of her probably temptations and frustrations into art, yeah. which suggests that maybe Asbury could have done the same thing. Yeah. In theory, if he had been dedicated to doing it. Well, it's interesting. Asbury's middle name is Porter. Uh, and that just makes me think of like a Porter, like a, a door holder. Um, and it made me think there's one moment in the, in the story. And now, now I'm going to flip. It's a, we're only two hours and 15 minutes in. Um, there's a moment in the story. It, it was either this or do an hour and a half on each story, and we just don't have that kind of time because we have a seven-month-old. When you um, have a babysitter, yeah. you milk it, and you go ahead and <laughs> do it two says, stories. Asbury moved his arms and legs helplessly as if he were pinned to the bed by the terrible eye. And that's uh, reminiscent of J. Alfred Prufrock. It says, as if you were sprawling on a pin, like like pinned to the wall, like a bug. Yeah, like a bug, and um, and then just this idea of like he's like, no, I, I'm not Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'll be a um, a, a what word does he use? I just lost it. Um, he's like, I, I'll, I'll, I think he might say Porter. He says a footman. He says a footman yeah. or something like that. Like I'll be there to like advance a scene or two. Like yeah. like he's oh, Rosencrantz or Guildenstern. Yeah, he yeah. he's like or, or Osric. Like he just like comes in randomly, mm-hmm. and then then he's gone. And and that's that's his problem is he doesn't understand this is his life. Like he's he's given up his life to the 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 the, the abstract concept of art as as a as a deity. You know and. And instead, here comes Father Finn, who gives him basically just Christian teaching. I mean, yeah. it's not, simple. it's not, yeah, it's simple. Look, it's pray, not, who made you? Yeah. Yeah. He, he says, yeah, who made you? And he says, different people believe different things about that. God made you. Who is God? Well, God is an, is an idea created by man. <laughs> God is a spirit infinitely perfect. You are a very ignorant boy. Now, boy... When you think about it in in this time, especially, was a pejorative word to use for a man because if you called someone a boy, it was like that's what white people would call black men, even if they're like seventy years old. And so that pejorative word to me actually kind of shakes him yeah. because here he's saying you're you, you know. I'm putting you on the lower rung of the totem pole the way that our society does black people. And he refuses to let art matter to a man who idolizes art in a beautiful way. Like you were talking about him feeling like a bug or a minor character. If you make art your God and then you fail to make any art 
you don't matter at all. No. Art's kind of a merciless God in that sense, right? Yes. And or if you don't, or art doesn't get appreciated and remembered, then you don't yeah. matter at all. I love that moment where Asbury said the first thing he wants to talk about is, "I wonder what you think of Joyce, Father. <laughs> what do you think of Joyce?" And the priest says, "Joyce, Joyce too." I mean, I wonder if the priest is thinking like. What's his mother's name, Joyce? Yeah. I just met, thought her name was, you know. Yeah. Joyce who? James Joyce, Asbury said and laughed. The priest brushed his huge hand in the air as if he were bothered by gnats. The idea that, okay, James Joyce, I would call him like a high priest of art in this era, right? Yes. Like he's just like kind of um, he had already passed unassailable away. Yeah. or something. He, was, yeah. he had already passed away, but he was... He was just the epitome of what every writer wanted to be. So the was, artist, artist. Yes. And to to say oh, this is irrelevant, like a, a gnat in my face, like slightly annoying that you're bringing this up, but ultimately irrelevant. And he's like, I've never heard, I've never met him. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, he's like, what do you think of James Joyce? And the priest is like thinking it's like someone that Asbury knows, yeah. which I think is really powerful. Yeah. Like. Like, well, who should matter to you, right? People yes. you know yes. are people who, like, whose art you want to discuss. Because don't get me wrong, like... We're discussing I, Flannery's art right now. I look forward to meeting <laughs> Flannery O'Connor in heaven or yes. meeting Charlotte Bronte in yes. heaven, right? Like, that's like a joy for me to think about. Um, but I don't get the impression that Asbury, like, loves James Joyce with, like, affection or something in his work. I, I get the feeling that he thinks, oh, well, you know, what would a Catholic priest think of james joyce yes. because he he grapples with catholicism so interestingly yeah. let's well, talk about it in the abstract and stephen dedalus is a character who makes art his religion uh -huh. at the end of the portrait of the artist rejects catholicism yes and, and so yeah. so i do think maybe asbury is trying to be a disciple of james joyce or trying to like yeah. be a, a, a living version of the character stephen dedalus yeah. um which is interesting because uh, Father uh, Father Finn is blind in one eye, just yeah. like James Joyce. And so there's this attitude of, like, if you actually got to talk to James Joyce, what would you talk about? And what if he, like, refused to talk to you about his art and, like, only wanted to talk to you about, like... Like, what he gotten wrong about faith. Like, what he right. wished he would have put his faith in. That's interesting. And And I think that that's... It's like you know, Flannery is writing this story. Like, what what would you talk to Flannery O'Connor about? Like, I would want to talk to her about how awesome Jesus is. And, and you know, she was kind of dismissive when people would want to, like, get into these interpretations of her stories yeah. um, and say, like, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. And she would be like, why don't you just read it and enjoy it? I've read so many, yeah. <laughs> like, excerpts from letters where she said, why don't you try to enjoy the story? Yeah. Well, and that's the word that they kept using on the uh, Close Reads podcast of, of these stories was experience. And I think that that's the perfect word for this story in particular is this story is an experience for Asbury and an experience for us as readers to just experience the Holy Spirit of God. Like, it, it's just, if you let this story affect you, this could actually bring you to saving faith. Like, I can't tell you how many times, as a person who had come to saving faith already reading these stories, but how many times in the last few weeks I've been out and about 
with lots of just examples of humanity, like kind of marching around, like at a coffee shop where you overhear conversations, and have thought to be judgmental, and say like, oh, that person sounds really arrogant, or that person seems really foolish, and then I will think I am being like this character from a Connor story, and I'll feel pierced in my heart, and I'll repent of being so judgmental, and I'll think, I am arrogant too. You know, these stories have really worked in my life in that way. Well, it's interesting that the the first person that Asbury's mom offers to bring him uh, is Mr. Bush. (laughs) It says she calls him Dr. Bush. It says, I I think I'll ask Dr. Bush to come see you. She said, raising Mr. Bush's rank. Like, she's like afraid to call him Mr. Bush because she's like, oh, Asbury will be judgmental because he's not a doctor. So I'll just say he's a doctor. And and it's like he has... You'd he's, enjoy him. He's he collects me- rare yeah. coins. <laughs> he's a Methodist minister, and it says you'd enjoy him. He collects rare coins. It says she was not prepared for the reaction she got. He began to shake all over and give loud spasmodic laughs. He seemed about to choke. And I put demon-possessed. <laughs> Asbury hears what the, the Methodist minister could come talk to him about, and he just gives what I think is, is the right answer is hysterical laughing. I know that I said he's demon-possessed, but if you're a Methodist minister and you want to go talk to a dying person about your rare coins, you don't need to be a Methodist minister. That's domesticated religion right there. I mean, that's what his mother's looking for, which is why I think she thinks it's so unpredictable bringing this Catholic priest into the picture because she's like, I don't know what they'll do. I don't know what they're like. I know Mr. Bush. That's what's interesting is like, you were talking about like being, being prejudiced and like, like, catching yourself being judgmental. I am so judgmental of the Catholic church because I'm not Catholic. And really part of why I wanted to do this was like to dignify people of Catholic faith that, that are, that are active in their faith. Now, people that are lapsed Catholics, you're, you're not really a a Christian, like you're a dead vine. You have no fruit. Like you can come alive again if you let Christ, you know, infuse you again. But, but, this has really been helpful to me to see Catholics as my brothers and sisters in Christ. I know, you know, Bert Daniel, if you're listening, I, I know what, what you said about Catholicism in the sermon like five weeks ago, but I do believe that the Holy Catholic Church, when based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, is our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this idea of if I was going to bring in a Catholic person to talk to me, I would think he or she would be the one that would bring like ancient knowledge and, and like this idea of like talking about rare coins from Cleopatra like a rich tradition yeah, ri- rich tradition and kind of like yeah. artistic things that that don't really apply to my modern yeah. situation that's also what yeah. that's what the mom thinks he, Asbury would find appealing so she like pulls out the one thing she knows about Mr. Bush that she thinks yes. Asbury would find yes. appealing and he does actually think that's what a Catholic priest is going to do for him like right it says uh Protected by their ancient institution, priests could afford to be cynical. Yeah. Um, that's what he wants the priest yeah. to be, expects yeah. the priest to be. And it, I thought that was pretty interesting because it's kind of like what you're saying, the concept of being a lapsed Catholic kind of almost fits with that because it's like 
but the institution I'm lapsed from is so venerable and strong that I can be lapsed from and it still has power over me or yeah. something like that. But when the priest actually shows up, he's not at all like that. He's not at all cynical. He's not at all passionless. He's direct. Yeah. He focuses on the, the, the vital truths and he's, he's power. It reminds me of in the end of the affair by Graham Greene. Mm-hmm. There's a, a moment where a skeptic and another character who's not really skeptical but just kind of indifferent to religion, they have dinner with a Catholic priest, mm-hmm. and they're, they're so shocked by how just firm he is in his convictions and how he focuses on yeah. just, like, the essential things because they want to get into either, like, a nice, polite discussion on the one hand or a contentious intellectual argument on the other hand and he refuses them both and he just tells them just straightforwardly the truths of the faith and it's unsettling to them and I think wow that's believing that the word has power and that God's truth has power just say it just state the truths Mm -hmm. let them be let God work with them don't let yourself get in the way too much you know your own intellect and your own like interests and softening of things and you know it's just, it's amazing how precise Flannery O'Connor is for someone that's that's not, like James Joyce is a good example of, he was like really precise with his language and things like Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and, and Ulysses. Once you get to Finnegan's Wake, it's just gobbledygook. But he's, he's a good example of someone that like artists would look at and be like, I want to be as precise as James Joyce. Whereas Flannery O'Connor is precise in a way that I think Anyone, even, I don't know what age child should be reading these stories, but I think a child could read these stories and and get some of the divine truths out of them. Deceptively simple language. Yeah, exactly. And it's his mother, he said, I am going to die. And it's I, you know, obviously um, uppercase, and then am is uppercase. So it's got this, like, I am, you know, God's... uh, you know, Yahweh name, like, translates to I am. And so there's this, you know, it says he tried to make each word like a hammer blow on top of her head. And I was thinking about Dr. Block's name because <laughs> it's such a, it's such a silly name. Is he a blockhead? Yeah. <laughs> that's what I But I was thinking, what if he is the cornerstone? Ooh, because it says he was, by definition, the enemy of death. And he looked now as if he knew yeah. he was battling the real thing. Yeah. And so Dr. Block is the cornerstone that either you get broken apart on top the, of the cornerstone like an anvil, which is which is the example of like Christ breaks you mm-hmm. because you will be broken over him. Because you underestimate him and he will yes. break you. Yes. And yeah. And and then if you that's if you if you come to faith. If you don't, then in the final judgment, he will crush you yeah. like a stone. It's like the way her deceptively simple style. I mean, he's deceptively simple, so he seems yeah. stupid to yeah. to uh, Asbury. But O'Con- I read today that um, O'Connor called her syntax one-cylinder syntax. <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. But using one-cylinder syntax instead of, I mean, I don't know, is James Joyce? What is the most eight cylinder, cylinders you cylinder, can possibly you have? Know, um, whatever. But one cylinder syntax is more powerful in a sense because it can reach the largest number of people, 
and it can exactly. linger in your mind and hit you hard. If you're reading one of Faulkner's, you know, 1,200-word <laughs> sentences, that just doesn't hit you in the same way. Every once in a while, I'll notice that, that O'Connor is using one short sentence that is powerful, that just makes you stop and slow down and, and linger. And it's just like a transition sentence that's just effective. Like there's one in Everything That Rises Must Converge that it's its own paragraph and it says, his eyes widened. That's right before he realizes that they have identical hats. But it just slows you down. It just hits you hard. I think her one-cylinder syntax fits the gospel, which is that it is as rich and complex as you want it to be, as you'll let it be in your life, but it's also simple enough to be understood by a little child and needs to be received like a little child. It's interesting that you bring that up because... (laughs) Home again, home again, jiggity jig, she said. Oh, God, Asbury groaned. And it's like, that's his first groaning for what he really needs, which is God. Now he's saying it, you know... You know, he's using his, the Lord's name in vain in that moment, but he's actually uttering what he needs. It's like, can we ever use the Lord's name in vain? Because it's so powerful mm-hmm. that, like, every time we use it as a curse word, we're really, like, saying what we need. Like, the grandmother in A Good Man is Hard to Find, she says, oh, Jesus, Jesus. And the narrator says that you can't tell if she's cursing or, like, calling out to Jesus. Yeah. It's, like, ambiguous. But I do think the way that Flannery O'Connor believes it really... In spite of ourselves, we're often sort of like opening ourselves up to God or being opened up to God um, and His reality. I think mm-hmm. I sometimes think that too. Like when we get shocked and we say, oh my God, we need to cry out to God in that moment. Maybe there's right. something in us that's doing it in spite of ourselves. And that, yeah, and I think that that's like, it's like our spirit saying we need, like, we need to rely on God in that moment because we're that shocked or scared or, or amazed or what you know whatever the, the emotional reaction is. And it's just interesting, like we're saying, how just how intentional she was with every every word, every sentence. Like like you said, that sentence uh, from everything that rises must converge. A one paragraph sentence is always going to be surprising. You know, and, and she does it in such a way that you don't always notice it. Mr. Mrs. Fox stiffened and did not budge. That's what it says right after the, the Father Finn says, thank you, you may leave us now. And I think that that's a very telling sentence. It's like she is immovable because she wants Asbury to stay alive forever, but Father Finn wants him to be alive in eternity, and he is the one that, that you know, it's like Asbury has to double up and say, I'd like to talk to Father Finn alone. Like, you know, <laughs> so so it's almost like God gets him where he wants him and has Father Finn deliver mm-hmm. the, the, the unadorned truth. And, and, you know, we get, you know, we get to the point where, do you pray with your family? God forbid, Asbury murmured. My mother doesn't have time to pray and my sister is an atheist, he shouted. And so it says, a shame, then you must pray for them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what a, just what a convicting moment that like Asbury. Like is, don't blame them, have compassion yeah, exactly. on like, them and do what you can do. Yeah. He's going to actually in faith, 
pray for his mother and sister instead of judge them or be dismissive of them. And, and that's what, that's what we all need to do. You know, whether it's our family members, our friends, our neighbors, you know, people in our cities or like Mrs. Greenleaf is doing celebrity divorces. Like there's nothing wrong with caring for people on the other side of the world or in, you know, another socioeconomic class or, or, you know, famous people and politicians. It's easy for us to dehumanize them and be like, they're, that person's a monster. That person's a joke, but they're not, they're, they're humans. They're Mm -hmm. God's creation as well. It's interesting that I know we're really belaboring now, but it says the Holy Ghost will not come until you see yourself as you are a lazy, ignorant, conceited youth. And then Mrs. Fox burst in enough of this. How dare you talk that way to a poor, sick boy? And those those are interesting contrasts. Is he a boy or is he a youth? You know, youth is is the word, the gilded youth, is a word that we use to dignify someone. Boy, like I said, can be something that could be pejorative and something that takes away the dignity of someone. And sick, he is sick in his spirit much more than in his body, but that he's lazy, ignorant, and conceited, you know, those are the things that are making him poor in spirit, not his undulant fever, right? That, that This sickness that he has is not killing him. What's killing him is his sin. The priest is treating him as a person who could repent. I think that does imply a certain respect, right? Mm-hmm. You're not just pitiful. Yeah. You're not just, like, weak and can't do any better. Yeah. You you could be different. So be different. You're responsible. And and just that idea of like Father Finn calls him ignorant, but not in a way like we use the word ignorant a lot of times in in the modern day to just be like just almost as mean as yeah. the n word. Like you're like, willfully <laughs> ignorant, yeah. not just ignorant. Yeah. You're you're willfully. Mm-hmm refusing to acknowledge the truth, whereas ignorant can just mean you don't know. Right, right. You just don't know. And, and you know, words that have connotations are oftentimes the most hurtful. You know, the N-word has much more hurtful connotations than the word black, you know, and that's why, you know, someone that's black probably isn't going to be upset that I say that they're black, but if I say that they're an N-word... They're right, rightfully going to get very upset because I know what the connotation of that word is. Now, if I was t- truly ignorant and said that word and didn't know it, then they might could understand that I was ignorant. But not, as a 38-year-old that mm-hmm. knows exactly what... Like as a, if a three-year-old said that exactly. word, you'd probably exactly. say, oh, this poor child, someone's taught him to say that. He doesn't know any better. Exactly. Yeah. And, oh, man, he's, he, and like you mentioned, Father Finn, you've neglected your duty as his mother. Like, you haven't taught him to pray. And that's, you know, that's what we're thinking about with our own child is, like, when you have a child, all of a sudden, you're the number one influence on somebody, you know, <laughs> by default. And, um, you know, we we have tried to be primary influencers on our colleagues and our siblings and, you know, our, our obviously our students um, and any listeners of this podcast, 
but realistically, we are an influence on people, but we are the influence on Josephine. And so we really want God to be the influence on her through us. And I think Father Finn is right to kind of be harsh with her because enough harshness might break a hardened heart. But, you know, gentleness with no, you know, speaking the truth with love, if it's all like gentleness but no truth, it's actually not loving. Where did the truth come from? Where did the truth go in that Mm -hmm. situation? Or is it just, yeah. And so when we get to the end of the story, it, it really is amazing, you know, that just that here in the last moments of this story, we find out that Asbury is not dying. He was never dying. He is, he's going to die because he's a human being, but he's not on his deathbed literally, but he was on his deathbed spiritually. And so for him to learn that and to see this, um, you know, this, this bird in the ceiling, which by the way, um, Ignatius Vogel is the pre- is the priest's name from New York. Vogel is uh, I think it's I can't remember what what uh, language it is, but it means bird. And so this idea of the bird in the ceiling is going to descend on him, and it's just such a beautiful ending. It says, "The eyes that stared back at him were the same that had returned his gaze every day from that mirror, but it seemed to him they were they they were paler." So this is his eyes. They looked shocked clean as if they had been prepared for some awful vision about to come down on him. He shuddered and turned his head quickly the other way and stared out the window. A blinding red-gold sun moved serenely from under a purple cloud. Below it, the tree line was black against the crimson sky. And so you've got these colors involved, including blue, purple, and red, which are the colors of the tabernacle. And so there are these divine colors, which, I mean, all colors are coming from God like he invented light. But gold, I mean, certainly, you know, associated with, with you know, the, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and, and the crimson sky, you know, the crimson of, of, of the cloak that Christ, they, you know, divide his garments and, like, just his blood in general. Um, it reformed a brittle wall, sorry, it formed a brittle wall standing as if it were the frail defense he had set up in his mind to protect him from what was coming. The boy fell back on his pillow. Interesting that it, the narrator uses boy there and stared at the ceiling. So it's like he still is a child in this moment. He's not a youth. He's, he's still a little boy because this thing that's on the ceiling, he's known it since he was a boy, which is probably from when his dad died. So it's like, it's been there this whole time, but now Mm -hmm. it's really truly forming what it's been there for the whole time. But now his eyes are seeing it. It says his limbs Mm -hmm. that had been racked for so many weeks by fever and chill were numb. Now the old life in him was exhausted. He awaited the coming of new. And it's almost like he's being crucified in the bed. When he was a little boy, he ran away from that evangelist, you know? And, um, Later, he's like, you know, I thought you were going to give me a present. And his, his sister, Mary George, says, well, I was going to give you salvation, but you ran away, so now you get nothing, you mm-hmm. know. But it makes me think, like, now he's too weak to run away. And that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's that's not a bad thing. That's what being poor in spirit yeah. is, is to say, I can't run away from God anymore. I need 
I need the salvation that Jesus alone yeah. can give me. And in your weakness, you get transformed into this strong, mm-hmm. truly strong person and not just a person putting on a pretentious show of strength. Yes. And it says, It was then that he felt the beginning of, the chi- of a chill, a chill so peculiar, so light, that it was like a warm ripple across a deeper sea of cold. His breath came short. The fierce bird, which through the years of his childhood and the days of his illness had been poised over his head, waiting mysteriously, appeared all at once to be in motion. Asbury blanched, and the last film of illusion was torn as if by a whirlwind from his eyes. He saw that for the rest of his days, frail, racked, but enduring, he would live in the face of a purifying terror. A feeble cry, a last impossible protest escaped him. But the Holy Ghost, emblazoned in ice instead of fire, continued implacable to descend. And so, you know, this this story ends so powerfully, so beautifully written, but... I mean, that, that, that purifying terror. I mean, this story is about a purifying terror and that idea of, like, what does it mean to fear God, you know? And he has been afraid of, like, dying a failure, right? Like, dying unfulfilled or dying without realizing his potential. And now he gets to live and have fear of God rather than man of God instead of art or whatever it was that he was like, he thought he needed to prove himself to. Now he's, he's justified when he puts his faith in the whole, well, obviously the Christ that's connected to the Holy Ghost is connected to God. That's the Trinity emblazoned in ice instead of fire continued implacable to descend. And so that idea of God's going to keep pursuing you, closer and closer and closer and closer until he's right above you on the ceiling. And in this moment, Asbury, like Whitney said, he just can't run away anymore. And so it took him 20 years, but he got the salvation that he he could have gotten hypothetically as a five-year-old, although, you know, we can get into the theological discussion of like, can five-year-olds really know the poverty of their spirit? I think, like I said earlier, that it requires a childlike faith to trust God completely. And so to say a five-year-old can't is to deny the power of God, but I think it's more powerful when someone comes to faith the way that Asbury is, which is running out of his options and seeing the other things not satisfy. And so in the end of this story, the enduring chill, it's such a... It's just such a good ending. I mean, I just, I was so amazed by this story. And, you know, that's why I want to talk about it early on and with, in conjunction with Greenleaf, because I think that Greenleaf is, like I said, it's the most uh, anthologized work. So in some ways it's maybe the most famous or one of the most famous, um, but I've never heard anybody talk about the Enduring Chill until we started researching for this podcast. And so uh, this is one that I think everyone should read just as much as they read, you know, Good Man's Hard to Find or Greenleaf or, or um, Good Country People, you know, the, fa- the famous ones or, or Life You Say May Be Your Own. Um, so, Whitney, g- give us some parting thoughts on Enduring Chill. Well, I'll just say um, to part, <laughs> I really love... Our her, conclusive. Yeah, I'm going to just say I really love her titles, and I just think this is 
um, indicative of how well chosen and powerful they are. Greenleaf. Um, it's not Mrs. Greenleaf. It's not Mr. Greenleaf. It's not E.T. It's not O.T. It's the everything that green leaves represent mm-hmm. um, that could create poverty of spirit in mm-hmm. Mrs. May and fail to. Um, but they're bull. They're scrub bull is ultimately what, you know, mm-hmm. brings brings her down. Mm-hmm. And the enduring chill takes on such resonance by the time you get to the end of the story mm-hmm. um, that those that enduring chill will be with him the rest of his life because of this this really arrogant, idolatrous decision he made to make a big show of drinking this milk every day. <laughs> um, that enduring chill will never leave him. It's not going to kill him, but it's going to be a reminder of weakness, of his own spiritual weakness and moral weakness, as well as physical weakness for the rest of his life. Mm. And that, that reminder of your weakness is the best thing that can ever happen to you, not the yes. worst thing that can ever yes. happen to you. Going into E.T. and O.T.'s milking parlor and seeing that it's more sparkling and beautiful than anything you've ever managed to make on your own farm. Mm -hmm. That humiliation can be the best thing that ever happened to you. If you let God use it. I really want to try to remember that going forward, that the most humiliating moments of my life can be the best moments of my life. If I let God use them. Yeah. And they can be the places where you feel most loved by God. Yeah. uh, Most supported by people. I mean, I've been way better supported you know, by, by friends and family when I have, um, you know, talked about my weaknesses and talked about my, you know, you know, my struggles and, and, and my, you know, shortcomings and, and even just the tragedies that I, that I have, it's like, I I feel like I'm an open book. I feel like most people that know me know, you know, know the real me. And and if they don't, it's just because I haven't really had the time to, to show them the whole thing. Um, but that's why we do this podcast. It's like, we, you know, this is who we are, and we want, we want Josephine to listen to these many years later uh, and just, you know, know us, like, like in a way that she can't know us as a seven-month-year-old, you know? <laughs> like, she's, she's such a little guy right now, and, and she'll know us much better in time. But just like with Flannery, it's like we can't know her personally in 2021 but we can get to know her now on earth and we can look forward to knowing her better in heaven and, and, and having an endless supply of, of faithful believers in heaven, whether it's someone famous on earth like Flannery or whether it's someone that's like, a, you know, an anonymous Sunday school teacher that, that taught a famous mm-hmm. pastor or something like that. Like, it's just as interesting. I mean, exactly. every believer is going to be just as like, fascinating beautiful to talk to it's just that i happen to have a little window into flannery o'connor or charlotte right. bronte's soul because they wrote so much and it's been preserved yeah but it doesn't mean that their souls are more interesting and beautiful than other people's yeah and it's because they're all identifying with the same source of life which is christ and if we do that then we will be inspirational to someone in the next generation obviously we're hoping that's josephine but we hope it's anyone that knows us because we, we that's why we're teachers. We, we don't want to keep the Holy Spirit within us and never show it to anyone or have any fruits of the Spirit. We want to have fruit of the Spirit such that people can know what fruit of the Spirit looks like and can know what a Christian looks like and, and thus can know how to live as Christ calls us. And, and, and Flannery, even though... 
her life was short. I mean, you know, she died when she was 39. We're, we're both 38. Like, we're, we're almost Flannery's age when she died. But even though she died young, by the world's standards, I think she lived a full life, and she left behind what Asbury wished he could have, which is something that gives insight to eternity. And so anyone that's inspired to, you know, write or paint or make music or dance or, or what, you know, whatever art form it is, if you let the Holy Spirit drive you, you, you can really make some fascinating things and, and it will have its day, even if it's not today. And I think that Flannery is going to get her day for, for years to come because she gave, she gave Christ the driver's seat in the fiction, especially starting with the Enduring Chill. And we'll talk about it a lot more in the remaining stories. Um, but that, you know, like I said, that's why we picked this collection is it's what do you do with your last breath? You know, and, and that's, I think that's just a powerful question to think. And I think about it all the time. I have a song about it called Psalm. But um, that's the last breath we've got on the Enduring Chill and, and Greenleaf, uh, a short two hours and 51 minutes in. That's it. That's it. So uh, God bless you for listening to us. Uh, we will talk about uh, View of the Woods and Judgment Day on the next episode of Summer Reading with the Deals. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.